listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. Welcome to the mother of all talk shows, the Open University of the Airwaves, the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees and where you are positively encouraged to speak back to the teacher. Love Island became Death Island. There's blood on the beach following the suicides of two participants from the popular ITV television series. Now the 40-year-old erstwhile presenter Caroline Flack lies dead by her own hand at the age of just 40 amidst an absolute blizzard of demands on social media for restrictions on social media amidst a scurry amongst popular tabloid newspapers to delete the archives of their previous contributions to this woman's state of mental health. And there's blood on the walls in the Democratic Party. They're desperate to stop Bernie Sanders now. And here, following the more or less interment of Joe Biden, is the latest wheeze. It's the billionaire ex-mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg. And who is his running mate? You guessed it. It's Hillary Clinton, just when you thought it was safe to get back in the water. Plenty of blood at the Bay of Pigs in Cuba, and we're celebrating, commemorating, the anniversary of Fidel Castro becoming Prime Minister of Cuba. We'll be talking, too, to the heavyweight champion of weightlifting for women. He only momentarily identified as one, but that was enough to take the record. I promise you, it's going to be stormy weather here on the mother of all talk shows. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. George Galloway. This is... Radio Sputnik. And this is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world. Thanks to the wonders of the internet. Thanks to SputnikNews.com. We're also on FM in the Washington, D.C. area. 105.5 are the magic numbers there. And on AM across the United States from coast to coast. But uniquely, I think this is a radio show with pictures. And many of you, maybe even most of you, are watching the show as well as listening to it. If you're watching on Facebook, either my Facebook or RT UK News Facebook or RT.com Facebook, the magic words are share, share, share. Because we just don't have to beat the opposition here. Not that there is much opposition. Certainly on a Sunday, this is the only place you'll get proper politics discussed proper cultural and other vibrant issues. But we have to beat the algorithms if you get my drift. So the only way to do that is for you to take matters in your own hand and share, share and share on Facebook. You can also watch on YouTube, on my own YouTube channel, on Artie's YouTube channel. You can also watch 
on my Twitter. And tonight, for the first time, you can watch live on Instagram. Thank you very much, those who are doing so uh, this way. So a plethora of platforms in which you can be a part of the Open University of the Airwaves. Now, Love Island became Death Island with the news that the erstwhile presenter of the show, Caroline Flack, at the age of just 40, took her own life and may she rest in peace. She clearly uh, was a woman who got caught up in something very sinister, very damaging indeed. And I'm going to deal with this story from both sides because there's a danger of the British in a fit of moral hysteria attempting to address the issues raised by this young woman's death in entirely the wrong way, in ways which will make every matter worse. Some of you won't like my take on these events, but it's my duty to tell you the truth as I see it. Love Island is an excrescence. I have never watched it, of course, uh, but it is a narcissistic jamboree, exploitative in the extreme, of young people at the most vulnerable parts of their lives. And it's done for profit for ITV, and it's done for the profit of the revolting tabloids that we have here in Britain, who suck at the teat until it bleeds, and bleed it has. Two of the participants of Love Island have committed suicide, and now the presenter, who was paid two million pounds a year to present Love Island, has taken her own life at the apex of her fame and presumably wealth. Everyone gets a piece of the action, but some people get more of a piece than others. The tabloids fill their pages on a daily basis with the latest trials and tribulations of young teenagers, young people, young vulnerable people, making a fool of themselves, betraying each other, betraying their partners outside, preening and cockwalking down the beaches of wherever it is filmed. The whole thing is based on muscular, beautiful young people who of course do their best to live up to that ideal, but it doesn't always work out like that. They're not always the people that they are pretending to be on screen. That's what happens in reality TV. I spent 22 days inside the big house of Big Brother. I know what it does to your mind. And so it came as no surprise to me when serious problems began to present themselves with people who'd been released from the island and on whom the cameras were no longer trained and who had to face the music of the things they had done and said on that television program. The tabloids love it. It's a staple of the tabloid. The only reason I know about Love Island or I've ever heard of Caroline Flack was because when I was on a local radio station here in Britain, owned by Rupert Murdoch, who owns the biggest of the tabloids, of course, they would speak about nothing else in the show before I came on air. And 
The man who had to hand over to me was the associate editor of The Sun, the worst of Mr. Murdoch's British tabloid newspapers. Dan Wooten was his name. He's crying today in his Chardonnay about the demise of Caroline Flack, but he was writing horrific stories and exposés about her before she committed suicide. He's crying now. She's not crying because she's dead, Dan. Now, all of that may seem to you to be a prelude to me demanding new laws, state action, and so on, but it's not. Because I'm here to tell you the only thing worse than the rabid mass media, the rabid so-called mainstream media that we have in this country, the only thing worse than that is a state-controlled media where there are laws to protect rich and famous people from exposure. And there's people now, right now, gathering signatures. I heard one in the car on the way here. 92,000 people have signed a petition demanding social media safeguards for celebrities. Now just pause and think about that for one minute. Many of these celebrities are only celebrities because of social media. Many of these celebrities are consciously, proactively exploiting social media to put their price up, to sell tickets, to sell records, films, books. If you have a law which says social media celebrities must be safeguarded, what you are really saying is that they must be treated differently to ordinary non-celebrities and protected and safeguarded from criticism, and you're saying to them, you've got a license to print money. We'll stop anyone criticizing you, attacking you, ridiculing you. All you need to do is show up on the social media and sell your tickets. That would clearly be a monstrosity. I also see people damning the Crown Prosecution Service for bringing criminal charges against the late and lamented Caroline Flack for having allegedly attacked her partner in his sleep so severely that there was blood on every wall, blood everywhere. And the partner called the police 999. What were the police to do? Say we're not going to come because she's a troubled celebrity? What was the CPS supposed to do? Not bring charges because she was a celebrity? And what was the media to do? Not report the fact that a two million a year television personality had allegedly banjoed her partner at the very risk of his life and that the police had been called, that the man had been taken to hospital. Do you really want to repress that kind of news? You can't do so, because if you do so, you're saying to the rich and powerful, the celebrities, those that rule us, that there can be one law for them and a different law for a man who commits an assault up an alley in Middlesbrough 
or somewhere else, a man who is not a celebrity or a woman who is not a celebrity for that matter. This is the road to madness. Once upon a time in Parliament, I talked out a private member's bill by a Tory MP called Nigel Watterson who wanted to introduce a privacy law. And I was able to say, look, I could show you my scars. I have actually had worse treatment from the mass media on social media than the vast majority of celebrities. But I'm here to say, I told the parliament, that this would be paving the road to hell with good intentions. Because once rich and powerful people can do what they like, shielded by laws which have built walls to allow them to carry on to their heart's desire, then you would be in a totalitarian society. And a totalitarian society bent to the wishes and the interests of the rich and powerful. Prince Andrew, for example, his conduct under a privacy law, under the protection of celebrities law, or whatever the petitioners want to call it, you would know nothing about the kind of things that the Queen's son has been doing with his well-upholstered life paid for by us, the taxpayer. If it wasn't for the Daily Mail, you wouldn't know any of these things. You wouldn't know about Ghislaine Maxwell. You wouldn't know about Prince Andrew and his relationship to Jeffrey Epstein. And now another sex beast whose island, whose private island he's been visiting. What was it about this sex beast's private island that first attracted you, Prince Andrew? What I'm saying is, Yes, our tabloid media, yes, our mass media is oftentimes utterly revolting. But you try being in a state-controlled media environment. Because I've been there. I've seen that. I tell you, it marks death for democracy, for freedom of speech, for freedom of expression for freedom from the algorithms and freedom from the people that own the platforms, the so-called public square that turns out to be anything but public, I promise you, that would be good night. Do not go quietly into that good night. Now, if there's blood on the beach on Love Island, there's blood on the walls in the Democratic Party in the United States. The latest wheeze given the utter failure of the waxwork Joe Biden, given the utter failure of the fake Cherokee Elizabeth Warren, given the utter failure of Pete, however you pronounce his name, Buttigieg, is the best I can do. Given their utter failure to check the remorseless insurgency of Senator Bernie Sanders, they've come up with what must be the most grotesque the most grotesque pairing in history, certainly in Western political history. They want to run the billionaire Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York, a Republican, 
a man who went to the Republican convention and endorsed the presidential campaign of George W. Bush, a man who didn't even participate in the debates or the primaries up till now, but who's now spending money out of his $67 billion fortune like it was going out of fashion. But worse, worse even than a president, Michael Bloomberg, would be Hillary Clinton as his running mate. And that, it appears, is what they intend. They intend to blow Bernie Sanders out of the water by running Bloomberg and Clinton as their ticket. Well, in one sense, I've, well look, it's incumbent on me to tell you, I would not encourage anyone, 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 to vote for Bloomberg and Clinton. And I think that the great majority of the supporters of Bernie Sanders, if this process is rigged in favor of Bloomberg and Hillary, will never vote for that ticket. And that means get ready for another four years of Donald J. Trump as president. Now, lastly, though there are many other issues on the agenda this evening, we have to look at another very, very vexatious issue. I watched uh, the so-called Corbyn candidate, Rebecca Long Bailey on television today, whose number one priority, number one priority, if she becomes leader of the Labour Party, is to deal with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Mind you, that's the number one priority of all three of the candidates, as spoken on television. But Rebecca Long Bailey wants to make a law in Britain that if you identify as a woman, you are a woman. Not that you must be treated like a woman, as I've already told you, I've already done that. I had a, a comrade who was a man whose hand I used to shake, who began to identify as a woman whose cheek I used to kiss, but who changed back to being a man again and whose hand I now shake. If somebody wants to identify as a woman, I'm prepared to stand up when they come back to the table, open the door for them to go through first, I'm ready to kiss their cheek rather than shake their hands. In other words, I'm ready to treat them as they want to be treated. But they are not women. And to make a law which so offends science and logic has to be the most disastrous labor policy yet. And yet, they're starting to apply it right now inside their own party. If anyone made the statement I have just made in the British Labour Party, imagine the party of Keir Hardy, the party of Ernest Bevin, the party of James Callaghan, Michael Foote, Tony Benn, you would be expelled forthwith from the Labour Party for making the statement that I just made because their position is that if you identify as a woman, then you are a Woman, this is the edge of madness. As a matter of fact, it's over the edge. It's into the chasm of madness. But that's what Rebecca Long Bailey intends for you in Britain. 
we're going to be talking to a man educated at Oxford University who became a rapper, who became a banker, who is an author and a coach. Of course, he's the legendary Zubi. And what's his connection to this story? Well, he's a super strong guy. So he decided to identify as a woman, albeit briefly, in order to break the women's weightlifting record. And he is now the world record holder in women's weightlifting, even though he's not a woman and only briefly identified as one in order to break this record, to get into the Guinness Book of Records. That's where this madness leads. It leads to men playing in women's football and using the strength and speed they have as men to cut a swathe through the defences of the women's football team, actual women, that he's playing against. Boys and men are winning, winning women's sporting events all over the world merely by identifying as women. I'm sorry. I cannot remain silent on this. I have actually tried to stay out, by and large, of this whole affair because it was such a swamp and guaranteed such a backlash on social media. But hey, I don't need any safeguards. I can just block lunatics. And if it gets too hot, I could just not go on social media. It's quite easy, you know. You just don't click. The button. I promise you this, it's going to be the mother of all talk shows tonight. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for the regular segment called Veterans for Peace, where we focus on the contemporary issues of war and peace that affect veterans, their families, the country, and the world as a whole. Veterans for Peace President Jerry Condon joins the show every Thursday. Hear about this and more every Thursday right here on Radio Sputnik. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway. The world is our classroom. And you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. Now just when you thought it was safe to get back into the water that Bernie Sanders was powering ahead, now Michael Bloomberg and his billions are powering up the table. Well, if you can run more television ads than any other competitor, in fact, more than all the other competitors put together. And if you announce Hillary Clinton's going to be your running mate, well, you've definitely exploded a nuclear device in the Democratic Party's process to pick their candidate to fight Donald Trump. I'm joined by the one and only speaker, writer, and political analyst, and my colleague at RT America, Caleb Mopan, my favorite. Caleb, welcome. Glad to be here, as always. Now, uh, I didn't see that one coming, did you? A Bloomberg-Hillary Clinton ticket? Well, it's not really surprising, right? The, uh, the New York City establishment that, that Bloomberg represented when he was mayor of this city, 
Hillary Clinton, who represented New York in the U.S. Senate. And, you know, I, it's it's not really a shocking combination. I guess what is shocking is that Hillary Clinton would attempt to reintroduce herself into the American elections after the epic disaster of 2016. Um, the fact that she was so overconfident, didn't visit Wisconsin, uh, made statements about a basket of deplorables, you know, basically just, just offering just blatant hatred for so many people in Rust Belt states. Uh, the fact that anyone would even consider having her on the ticket again is certainly shocking. Well, uh, let's talk about him first then. He is uh, spending big. He said he's prepared to spend $1 billion of his own money on this race. And I'll warrant he'll go further than that if he gets the nomination. Uh, he is, he's burst into the ratings. I mean, I'm looking at the opinion polls every day. Uh, he's already well ahead of Biden and Warren. Uh, it's quite likely to come down to him versus Bernie for the nomination, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. Uh, he's, he's looking to be the centrist Democrat. And what's rather ironic is it's constantly being pointed out by Bernie Sanders' Democratic Party detractors that technically Bernie Sanders is a registered independent. But as a member of the U.S. Senate, as a member of the House of Representatives before that, he was always treated as a Democrat. He was a socialist. He was considered to be left wing. He was treated as a Democrat. But when Bloomberg was mayor of this city, and I lived here when he was mayor of this city, uh, he was a Republican. He was a member of the Republican Party, and he fought tooth and nail against the Democratic Party here on issues like living wage bills, for example. Not only did he veto a, a bill that would require all companies contracted by New York City to pay a decent wage, he not only vetoed it, he then sued the city over the bill to prevent it from being implemented. He worked really, really hard to prevent living wage legislation. Uh, when it came to the issue of the stop and frisk with the police searching people randomly on the street without cause to make sure they have no weapons. That was a staple of his leadership of this city. So, yes, you know, it wasn't quite random, was it, Caleb? It wasn't quite yeah. random. Uh, not exactly. No, I mean, it's been documented and court cases showed that certain ethnic groups and, and, and were certainly targeted by it wasn't a random policy, but that was what he was all about. And he, he went after the Muslim community in New York City pretty viciously with the sending of provocateurs into mosques and, and all kinds of frame-up operations, you know, just stoking up fear of Muslims. And, and uh, you know, on certain social issues, he was somewhat liberal, but, uh, but he was not considered a friend of the Democratic Party here. But now, uh, as he's you know competing in the national election, all of a sudden he and the Democratic Party elite are tied uh, tied closer than a knot. I mean, they're they're closer than ever. What's interesting is Bill De Blasio, who is our current mayor, who endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016, has endorsed Bernie Sanders. So that was kind of a surprise. Many assumed that because he had endorsed Hillary Clinton before, that he would then endorse uh, he would endorse some centrist Democrat this time. But Bill De Blasio, the successor of Michael Bloomberg, is now in the Bernie camp. So quite an interesting turn of events. Now Bernie's doing very well, uh, but he's having to fight quite a large number of rivals. Presumably they start to winnow out now. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, Las Vegas uh, today, Nevada today, isn't it? How do you hear that's going? Well, 
you know, if you'll recall, the last race in Nevada got pretty ugly when the Democratic National Committee of, of, Colorado, of Nevada had their state convention. There was quite a bit of scuffling last time. It was particularly ugly. It was one of the more heated states. Um, but what's really crazy, as you just pointed out, you know, Bernie Sanders is the front runner at this point, according to all the polls, right? He was, he was leading in the votes in Iowa, leading in the votes in New Hampshire. He's ahead, right? Polls show he's ahead. He is the front runner. But mainstream U.S. media just cannot bring themselves to say those words. Uh, they say, you know, they report on New Hampshire. Wow, second place for Buttigieg. Wow, third place for Amy Klobuchar. They just cannot bring themselves to say that Bernie Sanders is in the lead. It, it causes them physical pain almost. You watch these CNN anchors sit there and try their hardest to just not articulate that Bernie Sanders is winning. It's, it, it's, it's shocking to watch. They're, they're painfully trying to report results without reporting victories for Bernie Sanders. It's like nothing we've ever seen. You want to talk about media bias. The results are there right next to them, and they can't say, they cannot say the words, Bernie Sanders is in the lead, Bernie Sanders is the front runner. Is it safe to say, as I said earlier, that Biden is bust, uh, that he'd be better, uh, he'd be better retiring before further embarrassment overcomes him? Oh, indeed. I mean, we've seen, I mean, between the, 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 you know, the inappropriate touching of women and these hugs that turn into him sniffing and the weird comments to little girls, you go a little bit further and the inappropriate racial innuendo and the claiming he was a civil rights activist and then backing away from the claim that he's a civil rights activist and now all of a sudden he was a civil rights activist again. Uh, weird anecdotes about fighting people with chains when he was a lifeguard at a pool. Uh, you know, I mean, you have to wonder if, the, if this man, you know, is starting to struggle with a little bit of dementia. I mean, I mean, you hear some of the things that, that has been said. So, you know, many people are looking at Joe Biden and thinking, OK, you've got that bluster, you've got that working class tough guy charm that everyone likes, but but you're saying things that are just just not winning you any any favors. Uh, uh, it, it's very very odd. And his relationship with the whole tough on crime situation, the fact that he called for building a wall along the Mexican border years decades before Trump did. Uh, you know you know Biden seems to seems to not really be the new flavor of the Democratic Party. He's not what all these young young people who are excited to go out and beat Donald Trump and are pouring into Bernie Sanders rallies. Joe Biden isn't what they want to hear. He just isn't. Now, uh, on that kind of uh, subject, we're not hearing so much about uh, Bernie's age and previous heart problem uh, because Bloomberg is the same age uh, with much more serious heart problems. Have you noticed that? Indeed, indeed. And um, it seems like all the all the leading candidates in the Democratic Party seem to be up there in age. Um, you know, there's there's certainly there's certainly no no danger of, of, of having a candidate who's too young and inexperienced. Uh, so right. it, it's quite amusing. But when you look at it, the Democratic Party, they have this legacy of being the party of urban political machines. And you can go back to you can go back to the Roosevelt years you can go back to even further than that. The Democratic Party has always been the party of, of urban political machines, and they are associated with corruption, with nepotism, and that has always been the curse hanging over the Democrats. The Republicans, on the other hand, you know, they started out as a very radical left-wing political party that was opposed to slavery. Karl Marx was a 
supporter of the Republican Party. And the New York City Republican Party newspaper uh, actually printed Karl Marx's writings, the New York Tribune. But they were always the party of small farmers and such. But they became the conservative party later. But but even though the, the politics have shifted, the demographics remain. The, the Democrats are the party of urban political machines. The Republicans are the party of rural folks and, and farmers. And, and that divide remains. And while the Republicans are very fanatical and extreme and people may not vote for them because they don't agree with them, with the Democrats, they have the problem, especially when it comes to centrists like, you know, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and such, that, that people just don't believe what they say. They know what they are associated with. If you live in New York City, if you live in Chicago, if you live in Philadelphia, if you live under these long-standing Democratic Party machines, you know that a lot of times, you know, there's a lot going on in the back room. There's a lot of deals that are being made. There's a lot of dishonesty. And that's what the Democratic Party is associated with. So so maybe yeah, people don't agree with the Republicans, rooms, but they Tammany, don't believe the Democrats. Yeah. Uh, Smoke-filled rooms, Tammany Hall. Um, that is most uh, people over here anyway. That's the uh, idea of the Democrats. Before we leave them, uh, what happens next? As I said, it's Nevada today. Is uh, South Carolina on Tuesday? Indeed. I mean, it's heating up. Uh, we've got we've got many big primaries coming up, and Bernie Sanders is ahead at this point. It seems like the base of the Democratic Party agrees with Bernie Sanders. This notion that we ought to have guaranteed health care, we ought to have guaranteed college education, this is what rank-and-file Democrats believe. But there is a leadership of the Democratic Party that does not want to hear this, and there's a mainstream media, even MSNBC, which is Democratic Party you know, aligned, they just don't want to let this happen. They are they are reluctant. They are fighting this tooth and nail. So it, it, it's going to be crazy. What is going to happen at this convention? I mean, when we, we head toward July, uh, what, is, what in the world is going to take place? How is the Democratic Party going to resolve this? And will the disagreements among Democrats ultimately result in a Trump victory? A lot of questions remain because this is an unprecedented situation. If you'd have said maybe, you know, five, six years ago that Bernie Sanders would be the presidential frontrunner, people would have laughed. Right. Things have rapidly, dramatically changed in the United States in the political climate. Well, Donald Trump must be laughing, uh, mustn't he? Uh, all of this is uh, meat and drink to him, a divided Democratic Party. If they pick Bernie, he runs a red baiting campaign. Uh, they're already calling uh, Bernie not a socialist, but a communist and sometimes with a capital C. Uh, and uh, if they don't pick Bernie, uh, he'll be crying crocodile tears for how crazy Bernie was cheated again. Uh, and uh, he'll, uh, if it's Bloomberg, uh, it'll be the big uh, New York billionaire against the midget uh, New York billionaire who might have more money but lacks almost everything else that Trump has got. Indeed. I will say, you know, it, right now it looks good for Trump, but there is one wild card, which is that, you know, Donald Trump began his State of the Union address recently by saying that the U.S. economy is the best it has ever been in all of U.S. history, which is quite a dramatic statement to make. And he has seemed to bet all of the House. He has put all of his chips on the economy. And if something rumbles on Wall Street and, and if things are not looking good economically, 
come October, November, Donald Trump could very well be suffering the consequences for these very grandiose and boastful statements he's made about the state of the economy. Because the reality is, even though stock market numbers are up, even though unemployment numbers are low, uh, when it comes to the rate of debt in the United States, when it comes to our crumbling infrastructure around the country, when it comes to a whole generation of young people with low-wage, short-term jobs, a lot of people are suffering. And if things don't continue to, to go artificially high on the stock market. And if the economy rumbles a little bit, Donald Trump could soon be eating his words very dramatically. You think even Bloomberg could beat him? Uh, if, if, if this economy doesn't continue to go well, uh, Donald Trump could be on his way out because he has bet everything. He has put everything he's got. He has, he has boasted out, out the, you know, the, at the highest volume about how good the economy is. And if the economy gets worse, he's got nothing. If uh, Bernie's cheated, will he run as an independent? If he's cheated and Bloomberg is uh, imposed? I don't think he will do that. No, I think Bernie Sanders will support the nominee. However, let's be clear, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and some others have indicated that they might not support Bernie Sanders if he ends up being the nominee. So yeah, Bernie has always been, he endorsed Hillary Clinton. He said that he would support uh, whoever the Democratic nominee is. But the centrists have, have actually not given a clear answer about whether or not they would back Bernie Sanders in November. So quite an interesting turn of events. Finally, and I'm grateful for your time, Caleb, uh, w this anti-Semitism thing, I know it sounds uh, utterly bonkers, uh, given that Bernie Sanders is himself Jewish. Uh, but there was an attempt made to carbonize uh, Sanders on the issue of anti-Semitism, to call uh, the man with the best chance of ever being the first Jewish president of the United States, to call him an anti-Semite. Has that prospered or flourished in, in any way? Well, it depends who you ask, really. I, I think that, that, you know, the majority of American Jews are in the Democratic Party um, and don't see Bernie Sanders that way. However, among, you know, more conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews, we've seen some interesting articles, like Jonah Goldberg, who is the editor of National Review, wrote an article, basically, he, he called it Karl Marx's Jew-hating conspiracy theory, arguing that any criticism of capitalism is inherently anti-Semitic, and that, that, that when Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, bourgeoisie was just code for Jew, right? So there is this feeling among a lot of right-wing forces that all leftism, all socialist ideology is somehow, you know, a covert form of anti-Semitism. And that belief is widespread among Republicans and conservatives in the United States. Uh, however, I I think for the majority of the folks in the Democratic camp, they don't buy that. They really, really don't buy that argument. Um, what is interesting is it's pretty clear that Israel has no love for Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has said, while he's critical of Netanyahu and critical of the Israeli government, he actually takes a position that Israel, you know, he recognizes it as a country. He, he supports Israel, basically, despite being harshly critical of it. But uh, he was not invited, you'll recall, in 2016. Uh, he ended up not speaking to the American political, uh, the Israeli American Political Action Conference, and that, uh, that, that, that many people have pointed out that, that the pro-Israel uh, you know, forces in the United States have no love for Bernie Sanders. They don't trust him. They consider him to be not their friend. So, so it's a complicated situation there. Really, it is. Well, complicated indeed, not least because Karl Marx also was Jewish, and the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 was routinely characterized as the, the Judeo-Bolshevik revolution uh, and yet uh, now we now we have uh, s such people uh, 
smoking out Bernie Sanders and Karl Marx as anti-Semites. Caleb Mopan, always a pleasure to see you and hear you and your analysis. It won't be long, I think, before we talk again. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, let me take a quick break. Radio Sputnik. every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. We are talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. Radio Sputnik, we speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We give you the most essential information out there. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Now the first poll of the evening, Caroline Flack. Did media kill the TV star? Yes or no, you can vote on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Caroline Flack, did media kill the TV star? Yes or no? Uh, lots of uh, emails, etc. Rachel Atherton says, George, I am having a go and I am hard enough. You are hugely disrespectful to women and seem to fear the power of our vaginas, whether they be real or metaphorical. What's a metaphorical vagina? For years, women have been discriminated against in sports, especially in world chess, where women don't need as many points as the men to be classed as grandmasters. Rebecca Long Bailey's law opens up a huge number of possibilities. I, for one, would love to see the England ladies take on the Argentina men's team and put Lionel Messi in his place. Your attitude on women is ghastly and you should tuck your meat and two veg between your legs in shame. I can't make up my mind if that's serious or not, but I'm still trying to, uh, if you'll forgive the phrase, get my head around a metaphorical vagina. Rachel, you're not hard enough unless you call. You know the number, call and let's have this out. Hi George, I'm writing to you in reference to the conversation you had with a caller last week about Greta Thunberg. While I too have great suspicion for her sudden rise with the backing of big money, and I consider Extinction Rebellion to be a toothless, petty bourgeois movement with no class analysis, the feedback loops which are causing exponential increases in carbon being released into the atmosphere do keep me up at night, and as a young man make me worry greatly for the future. As the fifth or sixth richest economy, it is our moral obligation to assist in the worldwide transition from fossil fuels, even if Britain 
isn't in the top spot for consumption. There will be a worldwide market for renewable energy and technology associated with mitigating the effects of climate change. We need to get in on this market and fast. A green industrial revolution would also give us a chance to showcase the merits of a centrally planned economy that is leagues more efficient and just than neoliberalism. Thank you, says John. My goodness, did the media kill the TV star, Caroline Flack? 58% of you say yes. 42% of you say no. Now, I better do that was the week. I thought I had a call coming through. But let me do that was the week, February 16th. The great Fidel Castro was sworn in on this day in 1959 as the Prime Minister of Cuba. He was also at 32, the youngest to hold the position. He had been sworn in in the cabinet room of the presidential palace in Havana. Castro, who was a doctor, led the resistance against the seven-year military rule of President Fulgencio Batista and commanded the 26th of July Army, a guerrilla force that drove the old regime into exile on New Year's Day 1959. As well as his supporters, a horde of Cuban and foreign media witnessed Fidel Castro being sworn into office, wearing his olive green rebel army fatigues and sporting his trademark square cap and beard. Uh, it's one of the greatest pleasures, honors of my life that I, in the end, spent hundreds of hours with the great Fidel Castro and uh, my book, The Fidel Castro Handbook, might repay reading. In 1965, the chairman of the British Railways Board, Dr. Richard Beeching, sadly I'm old enough to remember him, outlined his brutal plan to cut Britain's railways by a quarter. He said the system was uneconomic and 2,000 local stations were closed and 70,000 jobs were cut. That worked out well, didn't it? Ironically or sensibly, the UK Transport Secretary, Grant Sharp, said today that not only would all the beaching cuts be restored, but more lines and services would be added. Let's see if he honours that promise. I see uh, that uh, he's denying that we're going to be asking the Chinese to build HS2, who claim they can build it in five years, and probably could. Uh, if this had been in 1972, you'd probably be sitting in the dark now. It's the sixth week of the miners' strike, 1972, and electricity has once more just become rationed with homes and businesses without electricity for up to nine hours a day. Miners had been picketing power stations and all other sources of fuel supply in an attempt to step up pressure on the government of Edward Heath. From this day back then, electricity was to be switched off on a rota basis, meaning people faced longer power cuts, up from six to nine hours. However, just three days later, the government gave in and a 95 million pound package was agreed, making miners the highest paid in the working class movement. That victory lasted just 12 years. Margaret Thatcher had determined to break the miners, and when she came to power, she did just that in 1984-85. After a year-long strike, miners were forced back to work, and the decimation of the industry was underway. That worked out well too, didn't it? In 1945, on Valentine's Day, February 14, would you believe, 
Britain and US bombers dropped hundreds of thousands of explosives on the German city of Dresden, raising it. 800 RAF Bomber Command planes let loose 650,000 incendiaries and 8,000 pounds of high explosives and hundreds of 4,000 pound bombs in two waves of attack. They faced very little anti-aircraft fire. Dresden, a historic city, was defenseless. As soon as one part of the city was alight, the bombers went for another until the whole of Dresden was ablaze. Altogether, 2,600 tons of high explosives and incendiary bombs were dropped on the defenseless city, creating a huge firestorm. The death toll is unknown, but the estimate is between 25,000 and 100,000 civilians. Now, uh, on February 13, 1991, in the first Gulf War, Hundreds of Iraqis in an air raid shelter were incinerated as two laser-guided bombs from American planes exploded in their midst. It was in America, five miles from the center of the, uh, sorry, it was in the Al-Amaria, yet another typo in this shockingly littered with typos document that I've got in my hand. It was the Al-Amaria shelter, five miles from the center of the Iraqi capital, Baghdad. The final death toll, or toll as it says here, was 314, including 130 children. I have been in that air raid shelter, Alain Maria. I was there with the late and great parliamentarian, Tam Dalyal. I saw the shadows on the wall burned into the wall of the people who were incinerated there. It was 17 years ago yesterday in 2003 although it feels as if it was actually yesterday that the largest ever protest march in Britain against the looming war on Iraq took place. I was one of the organizers and marched at the front of around two million people who choked central London demanding that there should be no war on Iraq. Another that didn't work out quite so well. 16 million people took part in the protests throughout the world, but to no avail and the war went ahead on a pack of lies, the consequences of which are still being felt today. As a matter of fact, it's uh, still going on. I mean, that's the truth of it. The Iraq war from 2003 is still going on. Uh, we threw not a pebble in a pool, we devastated uh, Iraq, it utterly, utterly devastated it and broke it into pieces and set wave, set in motion shock waves uh, that are still being felt, still creating new forms uh, of uh, political extremism and madness. That's exactly what we did. And therefore, President Obama was right when he said that the ISIS phenomenon, and along in a minute will be, I have no doubt, another form of this Islamist extremist madness, even worse, if you can believe it, uh, than ISIS. But President Obama was right when he said uh, that the ISIS phenomenon was a direct product of the invasion and occupation uh, of Iraq. As, as he put it, it just goes to show that you should be uh, uh, careful. You should look before you shoot. And it's not that these people had no warning of this. I'm only one of those who persistently warned them. I did have uh, a certain authenticity in what I was saying because I knew the area well, I knew Iraq well, I knew it better than anybody else and I said to Tony Blair personally that uh, 
If he and George Bush invaded Iraq, the fall of Baghdad would not be the beginning of the end, merely the end of the beginning. Little did I know that 17 years later, this war would essentially still be going on and spawning ever more horrific hatred, death, blood, murder, mayhem, maiming, everything that has happened over the last 17 years is directly attributable to the invasion of George Bush and Tony Blair uh, of Iraq. I made a film about it, The Killings of Tony Blair. It was on uh, London Live on television uh, earlier uh, this week, or last week rather, Monday I think it was, Monday or Tuesday. Um, everything that uh, we in the anti-war movement predicted has come to pass, except where we considerably underestimated. I said to Blair in that conversation, for example, there's no Al-Qaeda in Iraq, but if you and Bush invade Iraq, there'll be 100,000 Al-Qaeda in Iraq. But that was a severe underestimation. And as I implied earlier, uh, Al-Qaeda was by no means the worst of it. Uh, Al-Qaeda was worsted by ISIS, which will, now that it's been defeated in Syria, uh, multiply somewhere else as something else uh, in likely an even more horrific way if that is possible to believe. So it wasn't just that the war was a crime. It was a crime, yes, but it was worse than a crime. It was a blunder. A crime you can uh, compensate for, you can uh, apologize for, you can do everything you can to mitigate. But it was a blunder because it was bound to lead to an extremization, a radicalization of Muslims around the world, including in our own country. As indeed the head of MI5, Dame Eliza Manningham-Buller, as was her name then, uh, she warned Mr. Blair that there would be a substantial increase in danger from domestic terrorism if they went ahead with the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Something happened to me in 2003. I don't mean that I was expelled out of the Labour Party by Tony Blair, that's a mere bagatelle, but my heart was torn out of my body over the invasion of Iraq. I, I, I'm one of these who has never actually recovered from it. The, the sheer scale of the mendacity that I watched inside the parliament the mendacity with which a case for war was built by an elected Labour, Labour government is something that I have never actually recovered from. And I, because I knew the truth, I knew that they were lying. And I watched as they piled lie upon lie upon lie upon lie. And it entered my, my bloodstream. I, even now, if I hear the word Iraq, I turn around as if somebody called my name. Uh, I will never, ever, ever stop highlighting the scale of this crime, this blunder. I will never stop pursuing the people who carried this crime, this blunder out. I can never judge anyone other than by where they stood on this crime. So, for example, even if the alternative was Attila the Hun, I could not vote for a member of parliament who voted for 
this pack of lies, this gigantic mountain of mendacity, this incredible crime, the worst crime since the Second World War, I could never support or honor anyone who was on the wrong side of that argument because I'm one of these who simply cannot accept the argument that because the Prime Minister told you something, you had to go along with it. Because we've had a lot of lying Prime Ministers and millions of people on February 15th in Britain and tens of millions around the world didn't have the benefit of the expensive Oxford education of Tony Blair. They didn't have the so-called intelligence reports on their desks uh, that uh, Blair was pretending to have, even though he'd actually largely written them himself through his amanuensis Alistair Campbell, his chief Gobelian spin doctor. We didn't have, they didn't have, I didn't have, even as a member of parliament, access to the experts and the, the David Kellys and the weapons experts and the rest. We just knew in our bones that to try and blame Iraq for 9-11, when 9-11 was carried out by people who hated the Iraqi leadership every bit as much as they hated the leadership of the United States or any Western country, was inherently dodgy. And when we saw Powell and the, George Robertson, the Labour Defence Minister at the time, did the same thing, he used to pick up his glass and say, this amount of chemical weapons, biological weapons that Iraq is developing, this cup could kill all of London, all of Paris. When Powell held up that little vial, remember, at the United Nations and said, this little vial could kill, I don't know how many thousands, hundreds of thousands he claimed. It was bad acting. It was counter to all logic. It was a lie, and so many millions of us could see that it was a lie. We also knew that kicking a hornet's nest was never a good idea, that it would send spinning out of control some of the nastiest forces it was then possible for us to imagine, and that it would all come back to sting us repeatedly and painfully. And all of that has come to pass. I was looking, just because it is the anniversary, an article I wrote in the Spectator magazine at the time. I also wrote a similar one in the New Statesman. They're available uh, online. Almost every word that I wrote before the invasion of Iraq in 2003, almost every word that I wrote came to pass and quickly. It was not the beginning of the end, it was only the end of the beginning. The Iraqi people did, as I told Mr. Blair, fight with their teeth if necessary until they drove the occupier from their land, and they're doing so until this day. The U.S. Embassy in Baghdad has just in the last hours been hit by powerful explosions fired by rockets by the Iraqi people. I know the Iraqi people well. 
They are good friends and bad enemies. They are the best of the Arabs. They're the most efficient of the Arabs. They're the most warlike uh, of the Arabs. They are disciplined and organized. And they will never stop fighting the foreign occupiers of their country. And so I say to American listeners, American viewers, tell your president, just as he is about to withdraw from Afghanistan, he needs to withdraw from Iraq. There are too many young American boys there who will otherwise come home in boxes to the full, sincere grief of the political leaders that sent them there. The first hour is by two more hours beckon. It is the mother of all talk shows, and now I throw to the news with the wonderful Emily Horn. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. China has announced a drop in new cases from the coronavirus outbreak for a third consecutive day. Authorities are reporting more than 2,000 new cases and 142 more deaths nationwide. New cases spiked earlier in the week after a change in the way they were counted, but have been falling ever since. In total, more than 68,000 people have been infected in China, with the death toll standing at 1,665. Outside China, there are more than 500 cases in nearly 30 countries. Taiwan is reporting its first death from the illness today. The victim was a man in his 60s who had not traveled abroad recently, but who had diabetes and hepatitis B. Four others have died outside China in France, Hong Kong, the Philippines, and Japan. The head of the World Health Organization has praised Beijing's response to the outbreak. More restrictions are now in place on the 60 million people living under lockdown in the province, the center of the outbreak, in an attempt to control the epidemic. Private cars are now banned from being used, and residents are being told to stay at home unless there is an emergency. 
Next, three major incidents have been declared in South Wales and parts of England after flooding and landslides as Storm Dennis continues to batter the UK. Efforts are underway to rescue people from their homes after the river in Powys burst its banks and some properties in Neath and Monmouthshire have been evacuated. Homes have also been flooded in Herefordshire where one resident said the storm hit like a tornado. More than 300 flood warnings are in place across the UK. There are currently four severe flood warnings in England and two in Wales, which means there is a danger to life. And the boyfriend of the British television presenter Caroline Flack, who had committed suicide, says they had something special, and he paid tribute to the former Love Island host who was found dead in her London flat. In an emotional Instagram post, Lewis Burton said, My heart is broken. Flack's management company says that the 40-year-old had been under huge pressure since she was accused of assaulting Burton, a charge she denied. She was due to stand trial next month. In his post accompanying a picture of the couple at a beach bar, Burton promised the star that he would be her voice and that he would try to make her proud. Caroline's agent is criticizing prosecutors for pursuing a show trial even after her partner said he did not support it. In response, the Crown Prosecution Service says given the tragic circumstances, they'll not comment on the specifics of the case at this stage. Bail conditions had stopped Caroline having any contact with Burton ahead of her trial. And the veteran singer Elton John is apologizing to fans after cutting a gig short in New Zealand when he was diagnosed with walking pneumonia. He was performing at the Mount Spart Stadium in Auckland as part of his global farewell tour when he lost his voice and began crying on stage. Footage online shows the 72-year-old being escorted from the stage while thousands of fans in the stadium give him a standing ovation. Next, the BBC could be forced to sell off most of its radio stations in a massive pruning back of its services. The Sunday Times is quoting a senior Downing Street source saying the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is really strident on the need for a serious reform at the national broadcaster. The number of TV channels could be reduced, the website scaled back and stars banned from taking well-paid second jobs. There will also be a consultation on replacing the license fee with a subscription model. And Yemen's Shia Houthi rebels are claiming they have downed a Saudi tornado fighter jet from the Arab coalition in the northwestern province of Al Jauf. According to a rebel spokesman, the fighter plane was hit with an advanced surface-to-air missile while it was carrying out an attack. The video showing the Saudi fighter allegedly being shot down was released by Yemen's TV channel. The Saudi-led Arab coalition has confirmed that one of their planes had crashed during an overnight operation in Yemen, but did not address how the aircraft came down. And finally, although he still hasn't announced he's a candidate and hasn't taken part in any debates, it's emerging that the U.S. Democratic presidential candidate, Mike Bloomberg, is paying social media influencers to boost his White House campaign. He's apparently commissioned some of the Internet's top viral creators to generate content about him that's reaching tens of millions of followers. The former New York mayor's campaign director says its strategy using memes was new to presidential politics. Bloomberg, a former Republican, has already spent more than $300 million in his bid to win the White House. Well, that's all for Sputnik News. I'm Emily Horn. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. 
Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio. Did media kill TV star Caroline Flack? Yes, 57% down one. No, 43% up one. You can vote on my Twitter feed at George Galloway. Now, as I said in On This Week, uh, in 1959, uh, On This Week, Fidel Castro was sworn in as Prime Minister of Cuba. He, of course, later became president, but the swearing in of this bearded and uniformed revolutionary fighter uh, attracted a very great deal of attention in 1959, on this day, in this week at least, when he was sworn in. So we thought it would be good to take a look, not just back, at those days, but at what has become of Cuba, which is still in the United States crosshairs, perhaps particularly in an election year when Florida in, is in play. Uh, it's a particularly dangerous time for the people of Cuba. But the failure to unseat the revolution in Venezuela could lead, and some in Washington are hoping it will lead, to a doubling down on the efforts to bring down the Cuban revolution for the first time now, no longer led by someone whose surname is Castro. So we've got Bernard Regan, the national secretary of the Cuba Solidarity Campaign, on the line now, I hope. Bernard, good evening. Welcome to you. Good evening, George. Now, uh, the Fidel was there a very long time, and then Raul, a decent uh, time. Uh, we now don't have a Castro at the helm. Uh, in Cuba. Have you noticed any difference in the orientation inside the country and in its policy towards outside? I was there in October, George, and um, I was very uh, reassured, or at least uh, well informed, to learn that there is a real commitment of continuity towards the achievements that the revolution has succeeded in, uh, in making over the decades. I think the, the biggest challenge that they face, and you've alluded to this already, is really the change in the presidency of the United States, which, uh, although strategically not varying very much from Obama's objectives of, of wanting to get rid of the revolution, nevertheless has really ratcheted up the, the pressures on Cuba. So there was a clear determination uh, amongst people to continue uh, with retaining the gains that they've made in terms of health, education, all of those kind of things, absolutely committed to that. Um, so that was very, very clear to me. Um, but it is, as you've said, and we've been talking about, it is the changes in the White House that are really the kind of uh, new scenario that we have to look at. Because uh, President Obama had uh, taken some steps towards normalization. Uh, but they've been reversed, I presume, by Donald Trump. They, some, some of them have, uh, and certainly some of the measures that have been taken are quite grave in terms of the threats to the Cuban economy. Uh, we saw with Obama uh, not so much a change in strategic objective, but a change in tactics, a decision to adopt a more uh, emollient kind of attitude towards Cuba, a more soft approach, if you like. So. Uh, diplomatic relations were restored. That is that the various embassies of the respective embassies were reopened. Uh, there was a dialing down of the uh, demagogy that came particularly from the from the White House and CIA and their allies. Uh, but in terms of kind of wishing to see changes in Cuba, Obama didn't differ 
uh, in the long term from what he wanted to see. That is, he wanted to see the ability of the American big companies to reinstall themselves on the island uh, and to see the gains that have been made go backward. Uh, however, what we're now seeing with Trump is certainly a, a qualitative shift in terms of that, not only um, uh, being clearly openly committed to ending the gains of the revolution, but actually imposing sanctions that go beyond what even was in place uh, for the last 23 years prior to Obama. And those are measures that are particularly attacking the Cuban economy. And I think it's relevant for us here in Britain to give some reflection to what the implications of that might be. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's obviously always been the U.S. intent to extraterritorialize their measures against Cuba. In other words, to force other states to comply with their unilaterally imposed sanctions and so on. Is that still going on? Very much so. And I do think it's, it's, it's got considerably worse. I was there, as I said, in October. And whilst I was there, uh, there were certainly kind of problems with the delivery of oil, for example. Um, so electro uh, electricity production and so on was, was uh, hampered to some extent. And measures were taken to change working arrangements, people uh, using daylight hours uh, to work and uh, therefore avoid the necessity to use too much electricity. Uh, people being uh, given the right to work at home and things like that so that transport wasn't over overutilized. And various measures were taken precautionary to, to, to ensure that the substantive uh, aspects of, of life would be preserved, like hospitals having access to generators and electricity and so on. So it's not a, it's not a dire situation, but they were taking precautions. And what was interesting to me was that whenever I talked to any Cubans, and I talked to a lot of Cubans on the street and round and about, and people came and talked, it was very evident people understood precisely why this was happening. Uh, and that was that it was the measures taken by Trump that were having this impact. Now, he's gone beyond that. Uh, and what he's also uh, begun to do is to limit the number of cruise ships going from the United States, which brought visitors. Visitors are down. I think it's something like um, a, a million down from uh, previous year in terms of United States visitors uh, coming to Cuba. We're seeing also um, some organizations like Trivago, which is the American, uh, sorry, the German company that deals with ho hotels and accommodation, uh, changing their notices. So not, uh, not uh, giving adverts to, to Cuban companies and so on, and Cuban resources. And so there's been some dialing down. And on top of that, just very recently, the Americans have put a ban on the chief executive officer of uh, the Melia, Hotel Melia Company, which is a Spanish company that has uh, cooperation with Cuba and runs a number of hotels in Cuba. And it's preventing him going to the United States, uh, where obviously they have business too, and imposing limits on them. So, you know, some of these measures and Another scale in addition to that, which I think is extremely serious, is the enactment of what's called Title III of the Helms-Burton and the Torricelli Act, which is legislation that is giving authority to Cuban-Americans to file for um, recuperation of money uh, as a result of uh, properties that they claim have been stolen by the Cubans, but of course were actually simply uh, put into public ownership and given back to the people. Yeah, now what about Britain? You're obviously the, the head of the, the British uh, angle, the British end of Cuba solidarity. How are relations between Britain and Cuba now? 
Well, this is an interesting thing. Uh, people will be aware that Prince Charles uh, and Camilla went to visit Cuba, and that was a very friendly and cordial thing. And we're, I think we're all very conscious of the fact that the these kind of royal visits, state visits, whether you're a, a royalist or not, and I'm certainly not, but nevertheless, they're often a precursor to development of trade relations between countries, and they're used as a kind of publicity PR uh, stunt to 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 you know, bring that in. And I thought, and I think many people thought that this was a good, all good well for the future in that Britain would begin to develop its economic relations with Cuba much more than it has done. Um, at the moment, uh, we, I think we have to be cautious about this because I think with Brexit, whether you're for it or against it, clearly Johnson is intent on making trade deals with Trump. And it's very evident that Trump may well try to add some conditionality to those trade deals, which won't directly, of course, talk about Cuba, but the implication will be that Britain becomes much more slavishly a follower of United States policy than it already is. Although the same uh, Johnson has insisted on Huawei being a part of the 5G rollout, he's playing tough on the Anne Sakulas affair, the killing of Harry Dunn, the young teenager mown down by an American CIA officer, Anser Kulas. Uh, so it's not really clear yet just how far uh, Boris Johnson is trying to butter up uh, Donald Trump. In any case, there's going to be someone along in November. Uh, Bernie Sanders is, uh, historically speaking, a friend of Cuba. You must be hoping for that. Well, that would certainly mark a significant change. I, I agree with you, by the way, about the point about Johnson, that he's not shifted uh, completely in terms of kind of terms of trade deals. But I just I'm just apprehensive that that might be uh, a feature of the way in which the United States uh, enters into any negotiations. For example, they were talking about uh, saying they're going to leave the National Health Service completely alone. But I think most people are very skeptical as to whether or not in the long run that will be the case. So we'll see. But certainly, as you're indicating, I think uh, Bernie Saunders being elected uh, would mark a shift, perhaps in the initial stages back, if he were to be elected, and one hopes that's the case, to the kind of positions that Obama had. But I would also hope being much more positive than that even, and going so far as to not just restoring diplomatic relations, but normalizing relations so that Cuba was treated uh, as any other country should should be treated, that its sovereignty was respected, that the United States had not to tried to impose its economic vision of what should happen in Cuba. And of course, one of the things that remains an outstanding question mark is the occupation by the United States of America of Guantanamo. And clearly that would be a real indicator of United States respect for Cuba if it was to withdraw completely from that base. Great point. How do people uh, contact the Cuba Solidarity Campaign, Bernard? Well, we have the website, George, and um, we're very happy to uh, receive uh, people joining us and, and being coming engaged. We have a lot of trade unions uh, which are members of the Cuba Solidarity Campaign, the overwhelming majority of trade unions in Britain. Uh, and we're very happy also to provide speakers and to call and to ask questions because we do appreciate that the, the, the kind of uh, media coverage that Cuba has in Britain is not sympathetic, is not, in the main, is not sympathetic. And therefore, we're willing to kind of give information and to answer questions as best we can if people have them. So it's cubasolidarity.com or? .org.uk.
cubasolidarity.org.uk. Bernard Regan, National Secretary, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, George. Let's uh, see that poll. Caroline Flack, did the media kill the TV star? 58% say yes, 42% say no. You can vote on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Now, uh, I've only got a minute to do this. Let me see if I can find a, a short one. I can't listen live today, so I'm dropping you this quick note. Great pick for your Hall of Fame with Paul Robeson. I stream his music all the time. His version of the Welsh National Anthem makes me want to be Welsh. It's a shame that here in the US you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone under the age of 60 who can tell you anything about other than that he was a communist, which he wasn't, as Trump would say, sad. Anyway, I thought if you were taking nominees for your Hall of Fame that I might chime in. He was a Brit, actually one of the few real revolutionaries from the days of George III here in the colonies. I'm speaking of Thomas Paine, who ruffled feathers of the fat and sassy from America back to England and over to France. I feel it was in France that he did his best work. Not only did he fight for the revolution, but he defended the royals from getting their heads chopped off. Imagine being against the death penalty in the 18th century. Who, who did he think he was? Bernie Sanders? For that, he almost, almost got his own head chopped off. Bravery like that is hard to find then and now. If I ran a school system, every student would know the age of reason and the rights of man, both written by Thomas Paine, inside out before graduation, from high school. I remember reading in the obituary of Richard Attenborough that he was planning a film or a documentary on Thomas Paine, but sadly it wasn't to be. Don't hold your breath waiting for Hollywood. That's from Jim L. in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for that, Jim. A very good uh, suggestion. I'll unveil the second of the members of the Mother of All Talk Shows Hall of Fame in the last hour. Now, I better take a break. Radio Sputnik. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. We are talking... 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We give you the most essential information out there. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. A lot about Caroline Flack. Will Carpenter says she took her own life 
Any presumed outside factors are purely the stuff of speculation and misplaced emotive angst. The truth is nobody will ever know exactly why she took the step she did. But nice bloke Phil says, is it not too soon to be discussing the tragic death of this lovely lady? Well, everybody else is discussing it, uh, Phil. Um, I'm not sure that we shouldn't be. Alistair Henderson says, the media didn't kill her. She did that all by herself. And Mark Porciani says, there isn't a no answer about the media killing Caroline Flack. It's more a question of did a nasty neoliberal media machine and the CPS drive this woman to taking her own life? Although, as I put it earlier, Mark, what was the CPS supposed to do about uh, such a serious alleged assault? Would they not prosecute because she was famous? Ask yourself that question. Lee says, poor Caroline wasn't helped by the media, but I think some celebs have a trait that makes them vulnerable to criticism. She should have known that by being a celeb. That said, British media need to look at themselves. Who listens to them anyway? I certainly don't. Uh, well, fewer do than did, but still a lot of people do, Lee. Let's take a call on that from Chris in Glasgow. Chris, go ahead, sir. Thanks for taking my phone call. Uh, watch every week. Thank you. Um, George, I've been following social media in, uh, since Caroline Flack's tragic death. Now, end of the day, she's someone's daughter. However, is it now time to have a re reflection on these reality TV shows, Love Island, I'm a Celebrity, Big Brother, etc.? Because there is no support for these people with mental health issues. Now, she took her own life. We don't know the circumstances. However, I feel for the folks who haven't got a voice, the ex-servicemen, the homeless, which is epidemic in the UK, where are these people getting exposure to the loss of life? Every life's equal, yet we don't hear about these people, the coverage they get. Yes, she's a celebrity. However, her voice wasn't strong when the two people on the very own show she, pre uh, she presented, she wasn't very forthcoming to give them support. Now, again... Social media has went bonkers over the last 24 hours uh, with support for her. I don't know the girl. I won't judge her. However, I think people need to have a, a, a good reflection on themselves and maybe uh, show that compassion and empathy to the people who are dying every single day with mental health issues that take their own life. Well, uh, that's very powerful, uh, Chris. Obviously, the blood of some people is more valuable in this yeah. society than the blood of others. Uh, the, the company that makes Love Island and ITV that broadcasts it have got a, a legal duty of care mm -hmm. uh, to the people they put on the screen and exposed to all the forces that are at work in these highly exploitative narcissistic environments. Yep. And uh, in the case of Love Island, they failed their duty of, of care. This is now the third suicide associated with the yes. show. Uh, yes. Now, uh, there was a... Uh, what was his name again, the British guy, uh, the, the equivalent Mike. of... The equi no, the equivalent of uh, Jerry Springer, uh, the guy that was on... Uh, Jeremy oh, Kyle. Kyle. The Jeremy Kyle. Kyle show got taken off the air after one uh, suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, this is now three suicides associated George. with Love Island. It's got, to be, it's got to be closed down by ITV yes, no. for reputational reasons. <laughs> 
they prey on the they prey on people now again everyone's different but people who are mentally strong or a bit more mentally savvy but they prey on these people for the quick uh, quick pound or the quick buck to make sure. um and then they, t- they toss them to the side once they've had their, 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 their exposure. Now, the guy, there's another guy as well who's going out with the girl from Little Mix. He had a meltdown in public at an awards ceremony recently, and you can see in his eyes that he's not a full shilling. Now, they need to have a look at this because, again, it could be somebody walking in the street, walking past you, who's found tomorrow, and God forbid that happens, because you see there they've got a legal duty of care. We've all got a duty of care to each other, not just the celebrity or the rich and powerful. Very well said, Chris, in Glasgow. Let's go to Frank in Germany. Go ahead, Frank. Hi, George. Hi. Uh, I have been living in Scotland in the first millennia, uh, in the first decade of this millennium, and I came to know you there through some of your media appearances mm-hmm. and I came to appreciate you and, and the way you talked frankly and the way you raised issues others never did but I've never understood why did you go on to Brick Brother and mm. I've always wanted to ask you that question well uh, 200,000 reasons for starters uh, 200,000 pounds raised for good public works and charity and the charity in question being the children in Palestine and there was not many people queuing up to give them very substantial amounts of money, tens, scores of thousands of pounds uh, of money. Uh, uh, So that was the uh, first reason. The second reason was that a very large number of people watch it. And uh, it was my belief that I'd be able, in conversation with the others in the house, to get across uh, my views, my anti-war views, my views... Uh, about politics and so on. That didn't work out quite so well because I later learned that they had birdsonged over most of my uh, erudite and lengthy conversations with the other people in the house. Um, But I did learn this. If you coop people up, in my case, for 22 days and nights in a completely unnatural environment and you subject them to uh, psychological experimentation, Uh, forcing them on pain of hunger and the hunger of uh, one's housemates uh, to do certain things uh, that you can change, you can uh, mold, you can distort uh, people's personalities quite considerably. Uh, That much I know. And thus, although I have never watched Love Island and never seen or heard of Caroline Flack until her uh, disastrous last couple of months, Uh, I recognize immediately uh, the kind of things that are going on in the exploitation uh, of the participants in that reality TV show. Frank, uh, yeah, over to you, Frank. Well, uh, I understand better now. Those are valid reasons, I think. As you said, I don't think it worked out quite so well for you as regards to your public standing. I've never watched that show because I've always regarded it as revolting rubbish. No offense meant. But uh, that's what I thought at the time. That's what I still think now. But mm. uh, now I understand better your reasons yeah. why you ever well, went on it had, that. It, it had its moments. The best I can say is it was the best celebrity, Big Brother, of all the uh, different series that there have been. Thanks a lot, Frank. Let's go to Michael in Minneapolis in the United States. Go ahead, Michael. 
Hello, George. Thanks for having me on the show. Welcome. Uh, Have you got any news from Nevada? Um, well, I, did, I, I know that Bernie's uh, leading in the latest polls there. Good. And I can tell you that, that here in Minneapolis, uh, I, we've been canvassing since last May, and we still have hardly seen any other campaign. So the ground game is real. Excellent. Go ahead. Um, so here's my, here's, here's my question for you. Um, should, my prediction is that with all the sort of chicanery going on, I believe Bernie will win a clear plurality, but I'm not sure if he'll win an outright majority. Now, as I'm sure you know, he needs to clear, get over 50% on the initial ballot to get the nomination. Otherwise, superdelegates get to come back into play. And at that point, the DNC could conceivably steal the nomination and throw it to another candidate. Exactly. So I'm asking you, if Bernie wins that plurality but not the majority, what do you think the DNC will do? Uh, well, they'll be taking a very big risk uh, to take the nomination away from him by sharp practice, by Tammany Hall maneuvers. Uh, that doesn't mean they won't. They did before. Uh, to do it a second time would carry more risks. And the biggest risk is that the Democratic ticket loses the votes of those that voted for Bernie in the primaries and caucuses. And that could cost them the election and another four years of Donald Trump. Now, some of them are ready, uh, more than ready, to pay that price. They would rather have Trump than Bernie Sanders as president of the United States, but perhaps not all of them. Perhaps some of them will work out that actually, however much we do didn't want Bernie, it's better that we have a Democrat in the White House than another four years of Donald Trump, which uh, it has highly unpredictable consequences, to say the least. But you tell me, what do you think? Um, I think that there will be a strong push to throw it to a different uh, candidate. And I would have said that that's for sure what would have happened. I will say recently, just having somebody like Bill de Blasio endorse Bernie gives me a little hope. Because if you can get enough of those corporate establishment Democrats saying, hey, this guy's the he's got the movement, he's the popular guy, we got to go with him, whether he's our pick or not, then maybe they'll get behind him. But I'm, I, I don't know. I've never been. I can't well, be very optimistic. I, 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 would tend, I would tend to the view that Bernie has to win it very clearly in order to get the ticket. Uh, if there's any possibility of maneuvers, uh, they, will, uh, they will take them. Uh, but, uh, of course, I'm not close enough to the ground to know that. I think uh, people like you and Sanders himself should concentrate on winning and winning so big uh, that uh, the police would have to be called in for grand larceny if the ticket was taken away from him. All right. Thanks a lot, George. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for watching, listening. George is in Cardiff. Go ahead, George. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, very clearly. Go ahead, sir. Fantastic. Yeah, I just wanted to call in and um, just basically point out that I think that this whole Bloomberg situation, it's actually a little bit worrying. Um, mostly because, obviously, you know, Sanders has the strongest support of all of the candidates. Um, obviously, is clearly going to be the best to beat Trump. Um, but then the fact that Bloomberg just suddenly popped up using his extreme wealth by all the bad time and, you know, ensure that, obviously, it's, it's going to be all over the place that he wants to be the president. Um, it, it's just quite... Hey, I've lost George. 
Let me go on with some reading while you get them back. Uh, Lee, uh, poor Caroline wasn't helped by the media. No, I've done that one. Uh, the generic Dalgleish says, I think multiple factors affected Caroline. And Dell says, Caroline's death is an absolute tragedy, but I feel that it has more to do with the vagaries of the legal process than the media. No one made her read a paper. No one made her access social media. And no one made her take part in whatever occurred on the night of the incident. An ethical omnivore says she killed herself. No one else did. This is just another excuse for the speech and thought police. If you can silence the papers and tell them what to write and not to them, then we're one step closer to totalitarianism. George in Cardiff's back on the line. Go ahead, George. Oh, hi there. Sorry about that. You're um, so, yeah, um, it, it just really worries me because Sean King, obviously uh, working a lot for Bernie Sanders, he tweeted today to say that he's been getting calls from family and friends um, telling him that they've got private investigators asking questions. And it all seems to link back to his criticism of Bloomberg. I mean, this is the sort of situation that the U.S elections are in at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, well, worrying. look, uh, Bloomberg is the sixth richest man in the world. He has a personal fortune in his own pocket, not his companies, of $67 billion. He's prepared to spend at the very least $1 billion of his own money, he says, to beat Trump. We heard on the news uh, that he is paying social media influencers, so say someone like me uh, with a big uh, reach, on social media, one and a half million nearly across all platforms, uh, he'd come along or his people would come along and say, we will pay you uh, X amount of money to boost us and boost Michael Bloomberg. And that, if it's happening across all of the United States, all of the age groups, the demographics, the uh, rappers here and uh, film stars there and fashion icons here, there, that's going to add up to a very, very powerful and purchased uh, wave of support, George, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, that, that is the main issue, really, that um, obviously that he's just showing that wealth equals power, and that is definitely not the way that it should be. Obviously, with Bernie Sanders, the grassroots movement, um, he's got the power of the people behind him, but obviously he's going to have quite a big fight now fighting against the actual corporate media and all of the billionaires that are supporting Bloomberg. He does indeed. Thanks for the call, George. Stephen is in Brisbane, in Australia. Go ahead, Stephen. Hello, George. I'm thrilled to talk to you. Wonderful. Thank um, you. I want to talk... I want to talk about the narrative uh, that that they uh, apply to Huawei, the the, uh, the telecom, the Chinese telecom company. Yeah. They say Huawei is untrustworthy because mm. they might put backdoors into their software products or their hardware products. But when you have a look at the history of of um, USA spooks putting backdoors into their products. You, you would have to suspect that the real reason they don't want to use Huawei is because they won't be able to force Huawei to put backdoors into their products for them. Well, uh, Stephen, that is uh, absolutely 100% correct. I'm absolutely certain uh, of that. The idea that a Chinese telecoms company uh, could not be trusted not to snoop and spy on their customers when expressed through the mouths of those who speak for 
the very Western corporations that do this right now on behalf of their own state or states is utterly laughable. And anyone who falls for uh, this kind of propaganda is really being extremely foolish. The idea that, uh, that the Chinese are uniquely likely, the inscrutable Chinaman is uniquely likely to spy on your telephone when your telephone is already being spied upon for commercial purposes, for political purposes, for legal purposes is uh, absolutely fatuous. Stephen, what time is it in Brisbane right now? It's half past six in the morning. Well, I take my hat off to you for staying up or getting up so early to watch or listen to the mother of all talk shows. And a big uh, hello to all my friends down under in, uh, in Australia. Now, earlier in the week, I did another of my RT shorts, this time on Sinn Féin and their stunning election victory in the Republic of Ireland. Take a look. Not for a hundred years have we seen anything like it. The political class of the whole world is currently riveted on the results of the Irish election. Sinn Féin have won. They won, actually, in January of 1920, securing an overwhelming majority of the Irish people's votes. But they were cheated then of one corner of their country, which we have since called Northern Ireland. Sinn Féin have been derided ever since as the political wing of the IRA. In fact, Margaret Thatcher forbade them the oxygen of publicity in the 1980s, insisting that their political leaders, if they had to appear on British television, must be voiced through the voice of an actor. It was good work for Equity, the Actors' Union, for quite some years. They were marginalized, reviled, ridiculed, and now they have won. Not just in the north of Ireland, where they have been strong for 40 years, but in the conservative south, which had ossified for the best part of a century in a false dichotomy between Fina Foyle and Fina Gale, two cheeks of the same backside, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, defining their entire politics on what they did back in 1920. Their neoliberal orthodoxy had gripped what became the Irish Republic in a paralyzing death grip which left the mass of the Irish people poor and getting poorer. Devastating cuts in public expenditure, rocketing prices for public services that are enjoyed free in the north of Ireland as part of Britain, but for which you have to pay through the nose in the south. Now, Sinn Féin encompasses a young and radical political movement which has bust that false dichotomy wide open. Sinn Féin ran as the anti-austerity party. Much of their rhetoric taken actually from the same kind of political drawer in which you'd find Bernie Sanders and before him 
Jeremy Corbyn. Sinn Féin didn't talk in the Irish election much about the border. They talked about the plight of the people in the 26 counties of what was the free state, later the Irish Republic. But their victory poses the biggest question of all for their near neighbour here in Britain. Now, when we have almost certainly a majority in the north for reunification of the island, predicated on an opposition to Brexit and a love for the EU, no doubt. The question of the border of partition, of Irish unity and independence, is right at the centre of Irish politics and will soon be in British politics too. Because it will be a condition, for sure, of any Sinn Féin support for whoever governs Ireland now that they support a border poll on reunification of the island of Ireland or there's no deal. Actually, if Sinn Féin had stood more candidates in this election, they might well have been forming a majority government right now. It's an unexpected consequence for Boris Johnson and Britain of Brexit. I'd love to be in on the conference call between Taoiseach Mary Lou Macdonald and Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of Britain. Boris's response so far, he's going to build another bridge. Not like the garden bridge that he never built over the River Thames, but which seems to have cost London taxpayers rather a few millions of pounds. No, this one is a 20-mile bridge between Scotland and the north of Ireland, built right over millions of tonnes of unexploded Second World War British munitions. What could possibly go wrong? Have something to say? Do you disagree with George? Then call us now and give us your view. Now, the poll's still running uh, till 9 o'clock, so 15 minutes you've got still to vote. Caroline Flack, did media kill the TV star? Currently running at, yes, 58%, no, 42%. You can vote on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Please let us know, because it's quite important. I'm getting very mixed uh, contributions here uh, from listeners and viewers. Nathan Thorpe says this issue deserves more than a simple yes or no to such a question. It was most likely a contributing factor. Yeah, unfortunately, with a poll, you can only have yes or no. Uh, Rango says, whilst it's clearly a tragic incident, so are many other suicides, but they don't get the same amount of sympathy. It might sound harsh, but there appears to be a strange collective hysteria going on here, which is actually the thing that is over the top. And Somerset Blue says, Caroline Flack killed Caroline Flack. The inquest may tell us why. Hashtag that's all. Brian Wilmot said, I said no on your poll because of the facts. Miss Flack was terrified of going to prison. Boyfriend did not want her prosecuted. Fault lies with the CJS, obviously. Why, Brian? Just because the victim of a crime doesn't want the criminal prosecuted, the, the whole legal system in the country would collapse on that basis. It's quite often, usually when women are battered, that they ask the authorities not to prosecute because they fear uh, the loss of the 
uh, the husband or partner that was violent. Uh, they've got shared uh, mortgages or uh, there are financial implications if the man goes to prison and so on. But you can't allow violent uh, people to go free because their victim, for one reason or another, no longer wants them to be prosecuted. He called the police. He was bathed in blood. He called the police, and once the police arrive, I'm afraid it's out of your hands. Bill Jacobi says the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee is helping to fund a super PAC launching attack ads against Senator Bernie Sanders in Nevada. That's from Rick's. Uh, 195 and George we don't want Ofcom controlling the internet and shutting down free speech on the internet uh, lots lots more um, I'm not sure if I'll go to a call uh, uh, one more then before I go to a call uh, George can I add my voice asking that your good friend Fidel Castro be added to the Moats Hall of Fame on this day etc as I've uh, myself uh, uh, already broadcast uh, take care says the shadow band Alex McGuigan in Belfast. Well, we are all struggling against the algorithms, if you get my drift, Alex. And I'll have more to say about this once uh, we have met Twitter, as I hope uh, they will agree we must. We certainly don't want people being shadow banned, algorithmically suppressed in their circulation, etc. Here's Joshua in London. Go ahead, Joshua. Uh, hi, George. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Thanks for calling. What would you like to ask? Yeah, I was just going to ask, George, on the issue of uh, Bernie Sanders, do you think he would take as sort of, well, I wouldn't, maybe not sycophantic, but do you think he would take as, uh, you know, easygoing a line with Vladimir Putin as, you know, um, Donald Trump? Well, it's a very good uh, question, and I'm going to answer it with a Russian joke. Uh, but uh, I've got to tell you, yeah. if, uh, if Donald Trump is Putin's agent, he's going about it, showing it in very, very funny ways, uh, because mm -hmm. he's broken treaties uh, with uh, the Russians. He has confronted the Russians in Syria and uh, mm -hmm. elsewhere. He's got NATO wargaming all over the borders uh, of the Russian Federation. If that's uh, the actions of a president who is actually in the pocket of Putin, I wouldn't like to see one that was uh, viscerally hostile. But the Russian joke, Joshua, which is mm. the best answer to you, uh, the American presidential race has come down to three people, one of whose yeah. grandfather was born in Russia and who is publicly, evidentially, sympathetic to the Russian position in the Ukraine, that's Bloomberg, is a Russian asset, according to uh, the U.S. Democratic Party and 95% of the U.S. media, that's Trump, or the man who took his honeymoon in the Soviet Union, that's Bernie Sanders. And the punchline of the joke is, Putin always wins. What do you think? Uh, well, to, uh, to be honest with you, George, I think that uh, Bernie Sanders would be roughly about the same, of about the same, in principle would be about of the same uh, sort of line of leniency towards Russia but in a, as Trump, but in a very different way, as in he would be more diplomatic, less sycophantic, and he would, instead of just paying lip service like Trump does to Putin, 
as he does, as he has so many times, Trump has so many times with, you know, so many people and hasn't meant a word of it. I think Bernie Sanders would, you know, uh, you know, non-proliferate in regards to nuclear stockpiling. I, yeah, I, think, I, I think that's right. Sanders would uh, actually have a foreign policy that was better than Trump's and therefore... If the Russians had a preference, I would hope that it would be for a better foreign policy coming out of the White House. Thanks, Joshua. Richard is in Manchester. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, thank you very much indeed, George, for taking my call. Welcome, uh, sir. I'm listening uh, avidly, as, as normal. Absolutely wonderful show. Thank George, you. can I just ask, please, um, about this, uh, the, the, the state of the power between the powers that used to be, uh, the Blairs and Faulkners, Majors, Heseltine, and so on, uh, they treated, treated this, this country, uh, the 17.4 million uh, Brexiteers uh, particularly, uh, as fools and not knowing what we were doing or what we were talking about. And uh, even uh, places uh, like the Supreme Court, uh, which uh, allegedly Faulkner and Blair set up over a drink. I don't know whether that's true or not. It's true, it yeah. It was evident in the events over Brexit that the Supreme Court did not show themselves as an unbiased institution, and even the Lords and Speaker Burko colluded uh, over a long period of time uh, to stop Brexit. I don't think that can be denied. No. And I wonder, it's, a big club, uh, it's a big club, Richard, and we're not in it. Oh, I, I, I would agree entirely, but maybe do you think Johnson could do something to get rid of the Supreme Court, if I dare suggest, without being taken to the gallows? No, well, uh, look, uh, I've just written a piece for RT.com, look it up, uh, in which I begin the delineation of the uh, counterintuitive aspects of Boris Johnson's uh, policy so far, uh, which oh. has left the Labour opposition squealing like maiden ants in a fit of the vapours about his extravagance with public money. Uh, the oh. building of HS2, the building of a bridge across the North Channel between Scotland and the north of Ireland, the clearing out of the Treasury zealots who wanted to continue austerity when actually Johnson wants to turn on the taps. He wants yes. to turn on the money taps. Uh, these are not normal. Uh, conservative prime ministerial attitudes these days, at least, uh, and uh, the 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 determination to take on the BBC is also one that I wholeheartedly support. I declare myself now in an inveterate enemy of the BBC. I will do everything that I can to see the end of the hopelessly anachronistic method of funding the BBC by compulsory poll tax on pain of going to prison. I want to see the BBC compete in the marketplace with every other media house, every other uh, alternative that there is. I'm now paying Netflix, Amazon, uh, Sky Sports, Manchester United TV, BT Sports. I better not say more in case my wife is listening. Uh, uh, why, why should the BBC be able to take more money from me than Netflix when I watch Netflix 90% of the time? I'm on your side completely, and YouTube is absolutely fabulous. It is. Can I, just, can I just ask you, finishing, if I may, George, I'm not taking too much time. No, go ahead. When is from killing Kelly out, George? 
We've got two interviews still to do. They will be done by the end of this month. Both of them are very important, central uh, interviews uh, to the film. And then it's up to the director who puts together the archive footage. Uh, we've already done some, uh, some uh, I'm not sure what the filmic word is, but some reconstructions uh, that uh, will save money on some of the archive footage and will also add drama to the product. And then it's into post-production. So I can't say when. It's taken much longer than we expected. It's been very, very much more difficult uh, than making a film about anybody else would have been for reasons which will be obvious uh, to you, yeah. given the subject matter. Uh, uh, there's been uh, uh, quite a few obstacles placed in our yeah. way, uh, but they'll all be in the narrative. They'll all be in the film. I'm not well, allowing anyone to put down obstacles and then ignoring it. I'm, I'm yeah. telling the people who'll watch we the film what those we obstacles were. We'll never forget that, George. Never in my lifetime or your lifetime or anybody else's what happened in, in, uh, when the Iraq war. I, I marched with you and the two million people against God bless you. So feel very strongly about that. God bless you, Richard. Thank you. From Manchester. Thanks. David is in Georgia. Let's hear from him. David, welcome. Hello, George. How are you doing? Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure is mine. Thanks, David. Go ahead. Well, I've got kind of a radical question for you, uh, but it's a radical situation here in America. Yeah. Uh, you've got uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, one of the few people that I've ever even heard talk like him about challenging the establishment. And my question is, uh, what he faces is not just your average corruption where uh, rich people are trying to influence the government to get what they want. You've got criminal behavior behind it, uh, from the financial uh, fall to the military actions all around the world, and now, really, in blatant sight, uh, you've got politicians trying to sway elections, really just cheat in elections. They did it to Ron Paul. Uh, George Bush did it to... Uh, Al Gore in Florida, and of course you saw what happened in 2016. So my question is, do you think, I mean, these elites, it doesn't really seem they can allow anybody to take power without really condemning themselves to go to jail. Well, that's, uh, uh, that's a very powerful call, David, and uh, very important and radical uh, perspective. Uh, let me put it this way. Uh, if I woke up in any morning now, between now and November, to discover that, that uh, Senator Bernie Sanders was no more, uh, that he had met the Kennedy option, the Bobby Kennedy option, the Dr. King option, uh, the Malcolm X option, I would not be remotely surprised. I'd be devastated. I'd be brokenhearted. But I wouldn't be remotely surprised, and I doubt if many people listening, watching this show, would be surprised. I actually am going to give you a, a, I'm going to let you know a secret. I'm actually wishing that Bernie would turn down the leftist rhetoric uh, just a little bit. Because every day he is lambasting the power, the wealth, the corrupt, the wicked in the United States in such clarion terms that I fear for his safety. And I've no doubt 
that that's why Bloomberg is being drafted. He's being drafted to have a last try at democratically, in heavy inverted commas, stopping Bernie Sanders. If he fails, that leaves only open, outright theft at the convention. And if that fails, that only leaves one other option, the Kennedy option. What do you think? Well, I was thinking that they might, I mean, there's so many people on both sides. And I was thinking that Trump might take a military coup to just capture the government and just go ahead and forget all the pleasantries. I, I honestly but think there's, get, there's more danger of the military conducting a coup against Donald Trump than Donald Trump being able to make them uh, commit a coup. I, I sense, well, I just I sense to, no support well, for Trump in the military, in the deep state. Well, a lot of people here in America condemn Bernie for not being strong enough. And it's interesting that you said that you'd like him to back off a little bit, because everybody uh, says they want him to go after him, but I don't agree. I'm with you. I, I, I feel that the, the kind of clarity and radical slogans, messages that he's sending every day and all day are to the left of what any Labour leader would do in an election. And given the state of American politics, even as compared to ours, I think there are certain dangers in doing that, but he's clearly, he clearly means it. And of course, yeah. I, my heart warms to that, but I fear for his safety. Well, I appreciate your, uh, your, your outlook on it, George. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens, but Indeed. I'm hoping that I'm hoping he can, he can get this done. It, it, it's what needs to be done. It, this isn't just some average country. This is America. It's what, the most powerful country on earth. It's not like some nation in South America like Cuba, which doesn't have much power. It's a completely different situation here. God bless you, David. Thanks for that wonderful call. I've got to go to the news with Emily Horn. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. 
China has announced a drop in new cases from the coronavirus outbreak for a third consecutive day. Authorities are reporting more than 2,000 new cases and 142 more deaths nationwide. New cases spiked earlier in the week after a change in the way they were counted, but have been falling ever since. In total, more than 68,000 people have been infected in China, with the death toll standing at 1,665. Outside China, there are more than 500 cases in nearly 30 countries. Taiwan is reporting its first death from the illness today. The victim was a man in his 60s who had not traveled abroad recently, but who had diabetes and hepatitis B. Four others have died outside China in France, Hong Kong, the Philippines, and Japan. The head of the World Health Organization has praised Beijing's response to the outbreak. More restrictions are now in place on the 60 million people living under lockdown in the province, the center of the outbreak, in an attempt to control the epidemic. Private cars are now banned from being used, and residents are being told to stay at home unless there is an emergency. Next, three major incidents have been declared in South Wales and parts of England after flooding and landslides as Storm Dennis continues to batter the UK. Efforts are underway to rescue people from their homes after the river in Powys burst its banks and some properties in Neath and Monmouthshire have been evacuated. Homes have also been flooded in Herefordshire where one resident said the storm hit like a tornado. More than 300 flood warnings are in place across the UK. There are currently four severe flood warnings in England and two in Wales, which means there is a danger to life. And the boyfriend of the British television presenter Caroline Flack, who had committed suicide, says they had something special, and he paid tribute to the former Love Island host who was found dead in her London flat. In an emotional Instagram post, Lewis Burton said, My heart is broken. Flack's management company says that the 40-year-old had been under huge pressure since she was accused of assaulting Burton, a charge she denied. She was due to stand trial next month. In his post accompanying a picture of the couple at a beach bar, Burton promised the star that he would be her voice and that he would try to make her proud. Caroline's agent is criticizing prosecutors for pursuing a show trial, even after her partner said he did not support it. In response, the Crown Prosecution Service says given the tragic circumstances, they'll not comment on the specifics of the case at this stage. Bail conditions had stopped Caroline having any contact with Burton ahead of her trial. And the veteran singer Elton John is apologizing to fans after cutting a gig short in New Zealand when he was diagnosed with walking pneumonia. He was performing at the Mount Spart Stadium in Auckland as part of his global farewell tour when he lost his voice and began crying on stage. Footage online shows the 72-year-old being escorted from the stage while thousands of fans in the stadium give him a standing ovation. Next, the BBC could be forced to sell off most of its radio stations in a massive pruning back of its services. The Sunday Times is quoting a senior Downing Street source saying the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is really strident on the need for a serious reform at the national broadcaster. The number of TV channels could be reduced, the website scaled back and stars banned from taking well-paid second jobs. There will also be a consultation on replacing the license fee with a subscription model. And Yemen's Shia Houthi rebels are claiming they have downed a Saudi tornado fighter jet from the Arab coalition in the northwestern province of Al Jauf. According to a rebel spokesman, the fighter plane was hit with an advanced surface-to-air missile while it was carrying out an attack. 
The video showing the Saudi fighter allegedly being shot down was released by Yemen's TV channel. The Saudi-led Arab coalition has confirmed that one of their planes had crashed during an overnight operation in Yemen, but did not address how the aircraft came down. And finally, although he still hasn't announced he's a candidate and hasn't taken part in any debates, it's emerging that the U.S. Democratic presidential candidate, Mike Bloomberg, is paying social media influencers to boost his White House campaign. He's apparently commissioned some of the Internet's top viral creators to generate content about him that's reaching tens of millions of followers. The former New York mayor's campaign director says its strategy using memes was new to presidential politics. Bloomberg, a former Republican, has already spent more than $300 million in his bid to win the White House. Well, that's all for Sputnik News. I'm Emily Horn. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio. Now, few people make it in public life with just one name. Napoleon, Elvis, Madonna. But Zubi is the latest man to do so. I have no idea the rest of his name, but he's a rapper, an author, a podcaster, a public speaker, a fitness expert, and a life coach. And he's on his way to superstardom. He was born in England and raised in Saudi Arabia, interesting in itself, where he attended an international school. He studied at Oxford University, where he started rapping and within months self-released his first album, Commercial Underground. His first single and music video, Stepping To Me, gained local popularity. And uh, since then, he's created his own successful merchandise line, uh, reaching 12 on the iTunes hip-hop chart, which is no mean achievement. He's self-released five albums and three EPs on his label, COM Entertainment. They've sold thousands of copies independently. Uh, Zuby is known for his clean, that's important, positive and inspirational lyrics. He's performed over 100 gigs in eight countries, including the UK, USA, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Germany, and the Czech Republic. In 2020, his fan base and achievements continued to grow rapidly. He's now the highest funded UK-based rapper on Kickstarter. His podcast, Real Talk with Zuby, reaches thousands of listeners every week. And his first book, Strong Advice, Zuby's Guide to Fitness for Everybody, has sold over a thousand copies uh, so far, and I'm one of them that has bought it. So welcome, Zuby, rapper, author, and host of Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Zuby, it's a terrific uh, honor to meet you. Thanks very much for uh, coming uh, on the show. It's an interesting CV, to say the least. Uh, are you the only rapper ever to emerge from the uh, dreaming spires of Oxford University? Um, well, firstly, I want to say thank you very much for that incredibly thorough and complimentary introduction. I, I really appreciate that. You're welcome. And in answer to the question, um, I'm aware of at least two others, so I can't claim that I am the only one. 
Really, I'm amazed uh, at yeah. that. Uh, that it's, uh, it's hard enough for black people to get into Oxford University, let alone become rappers uh, when they're there. Are the other rappers black or white? Um, I'm aware of one Asian guy and one white guy from America. How very interesting, because I heard you talk in other uh, interviews uh, in which you said that one of the things that first grabbed you uh, was the... Uh, frankly nonsensical idea that Eminem was somehow uh, culturally appropriating uh, other people's uh, identity uh, by becoming a white rapper. Uh, and I was fascinated by your line of argument on that. It is nonsense, isn't it? It's definitely nonsense. I'm not a fan of the whole concept of cultural appropriation to begin with let alone to attempt to levy it at one of the greatest rappers of all time. Um, yeah, I, I'm not a fan of that whole line of thinking. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, an artistic form. And yeah. uh, part of the point of an artistic form is that others should take it up, improve it, uh, expand it, uh, have a take on it, isn't it? Yeah, I agree completely. Hip-hop, of course, started in New York with a small segment of the black American population. But since then, it's been exported to every country in the world, as far as I'm aware, including the UK. I mean, people could claim that grime artists and rappers in the UK are culturally appropriating America. I mean, we could throw that label around it. So many different things from the clothes we wear to the languages we speak, if we really wanted to go down that rabbit hole. So I think it's silly. And, you know, if we've got a society where people are promoting um, diversity and different cultures and different ethnicities and everything like that, then of course we're going to naturally rub off on each other in different ways and influence each other in different ways and inherent different things. And that's generally celebrated. So I find it odd when people want to make exceptions to that and call things cultural appropriation as if it's a totally negative thing. I mean, Culture isn't something that you can sort of steal from somebody because you're not depriving of the person. If you were to appropriate something, you have to sort of deprive someone of that thing. But if you're just being influenced, influenced by it and putting your own spin on it or using it in a positive way or something, then, you know, there's no there's no loss to the other side on that one. As far as I'm concerned, that's an overall good thing for society. Now, I was equally interested that you grew up in Saudi Arabia, not a place often associated with uh, rapping or, or culture <laughs> or, or music. It's haram, in fact, in Saudi Arabia, most forms or many forms of music. Uh, what was that like? People are always surprised when I say that I loved growing up in Saudi Arabia. I mean, I was living in an expat community, so I'm aware that where I lived was very different in many ways from what you would call the real Saudi, right? I was in a little bit of a bubble, but when you go out, of course, I'd go outside of it as well. So I'd get to see both sides. So where I lived was a very international community, people from all over the world, different Arab countries, different European countries, North America, South America, everywhere. I grew up in a really, really diverse place. Um, and in terms of, I mean, I lived in Saudi for 19 years and my overall view on it was very, very positive. Uh, people in the UK and US are always surprised when I say that, but to those who have lived there, um, most of them seem to be in agreement with me. Well, you've got to say as you see, and uh, that's a point I heard in one of your lyrics, 
that you're not left wing, you're not right wing. Uh, you just say, <laughs> you just say what you know. Uh, I try to, and uh, that that's uh, perhaps uh, a new zeitgeist actually, uh, because in many respects, left and right are becoming uh, rather more difficult to uh, define. Uh, mm. But obviously, I can't uh, interview you without uh, encouraging your iconoclasm uh, on the issue of, uh, of uh, gender politics, which have become something of an infatuation, an obsession in <laughs> British uh, politics, maybe in American politics too, but even on the left, perhaps particularly on the left in mm. British politics, uh, the, one of the leaders, uh, one of the leading contenders to be leader of the Labour Party, Rebecca Long-Bailey, uh, said the words today, I carefully noted them because they were a step further than I'd ever, I'd ever heard her make before, that if you identify as a woman, you are a woman. Mm. Uh, now, as a matter of science, as a matter of logic, of common sense, that's just about the craziest statement I've ever heard a leading politician make. And I prayed you in aid earlier uh, in the way that you broke the women's weightlifting <laughs> record. And you yes. identified as a woman while you were doing it. Yes. And thus you are the woman who has lifted heavier weights than any woman in history, even though you yes. quickly uh, re-identified as a man. Doesn't that sum up how stupid all of this is? Well, yeah, I mean, yes, I am the British women's, in my weight class, deadlift and bench press champion, according to these new rules that are being set around gender identity. So, you know, there's a lot of people who have been talking about this for a while, and people tend to get very angry and emotional and hyped up around this issue. And, you know, when I posted that tweet last year, it was about a year ago now, and it went incredibly viral. And I wanted to just apply the same logic you know, rather than get angry or, you know, scream or shout or anybody or target or harass anybody. It's not, not my method of doing things. I wanted to just say, okay, well, if those are the rules, then I'm going to just simply play by the rules and then people can agree or disagree and give me the record or not give me the record, depending on, you know, let's see how much, let's see how strongly people stick to this idea when it's actually put into practice. And it see, it turns out that People don't really like to stick to that idea when put into practice, and they'll start well, no, not trying to move the, the general public. Uh, mm. the, this stand taken by Rebecca Long Bailey will turn out to be uh, utterly ruinous on a nuclear level uh, to sure. her party's political prospects. So, amongst the public, yes, but in the bubble of the political class, uh, they do like it, and they are not dissuaded uh, by a giant hunk of a man like you. Uh, breaking the women's <laughs> bench press record because you were temporarily identifying as a woman. Because there are men, women winning women's and girls sporting contests mm -hmm. all over the world mm. now and taking trophies, claiming medals that are supposed to be for girls and women. It's very, very bizarre. I, it's weird because I, I, I I've been talking about this for at least five years. And it's something that when I used to mention, people would tell me that I'm being alarmist, I'm being ridiculous. Some would even tell me that I'm being mean or prejudiced or something by saying that this whole concept is ridiculous. And then it turns out a few years later, people are now sort of seeing the fruits 
that are com- that are coming to light from these seeds that were planted many years ago, and this strange idea and ideology where you're just supposed to accept and believe that anyone can just be anything that they say. I mean, I don't know why, based on the same logic, I don't know why the same thing couldn't apply to race or ethnicity or age. In fact, I've seen some instances, um, even within the music industry, which I work in, where actually you now can self-identify your own race and your own ethnicity. Um, So I don't see why you can't also self-identify your own age. I mean, if I can be a woman, I don't know why I can't be 22 years old. I mean, I'm, I'm 33, but I think me being 22 is more believable than me being a woman. Um, or I don't know why I can't be Indian or Pakistani or perhaps even white or Chinese. Um, so they're opening, I mean, they've opened a real Pandora's box with this idea. And it is causing a lot of problems. I mean, the most ob- one of the most obvious ones is the sports issue. But... Um, it's also been an issue in prisons, in changing rooms, in toilet facilities. I mean, it's really women who are going to suffer some of the impact, for well, the, so, the majority yeah. of the impact on this. Um, but when women, and, including some mm, of our greatest feminist icons like Jermaine Greer and so on, when they mm, say what you and I are agreeing now, uh, they are in some cases physically assailed. Mm, there are no platformed. Uh, they are shunned. They're called the worst kinds of traitors, whatever the gender equivalent of race traitor uh, mm. is. That's what they are called. Uh, this is a particularly toxic uh, trough. I take my hat off to you for talking about it for the last five years because I didn't. <laughs> I okay. didn't. I kept quiet about it. I didn't want to get involved. I was involved in so many other fights and battles. I didn't want to pick another one. But I've reached the stage, and you clearly already reached it, uh, where I'm not prepared to remain silent on these matters any Mm. longer, not least because uh, it is women themselves who will be the first victims in the prisons, for example. Yes, yes, and that has happened. Yeah, you've got a whole raft of males identifying as women put into women's prisons and then committing crimes against the women in those prisons. Mm. Sometimes the very same crimes that they were initially convicted of as well. Quite so. Which tends to be, yeah, it's, it, it's very strange because we're living in a time where it seems like a very, very tiny percentage of the population is dictating the, rule, the rules to the vast majority. I mean, if you if you were to go out on the street and ask people about this, I'm pretty sure that at least, I'm pretty sure that eight out of 10, nine out of 10 people would think that the concept is silly and ridiculous. And maybe they probably, maybe they wouldn't even be aware that this is an issue and that this is a thing. Um, But it seems like on this and many other issues, a large majority of people are just very cowed. You know, people are afraid. People don't want to speak out about against the mob. People, like you said, people don't want to be attacked physically, verbally, online, offline. They don't want to put their jobs at risk. They don't want to be, um, you know, looked at at the wrong way by certain people. They don't want to be called any kind of phobic or ism, which, you know, people tend to throw around very, very aggressively, even when... Phobics and isms are the zeitgeist uh, in the political class. Well, Zubi, Mm. you're not afraid, neither am I any longer. And I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. How do people get a hold of your podcast? 
Sure. It's on all the platforms, iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, etc. Just search for Zuby or Zuby Podcast. The podcast is called Real Talk with Zuby. You can also find my music on all those platforms. Just search for Zuby, Z-U-B-Y. And I'm on all social media at Zuby Music. You're a gentleman, no matter what the uh, records say in the weightlifting <laughs> division. You're a gentleman and a scholar. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much for Thank joining much. me. Let's take a quick break. Radio Sputnik. We call Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan the most disruptive radio show in America. It's a great show and we have a lot of fun. We come to you live from Washington, D.C. every Monday through Friday morning. What I like best is that we bring in experts from all over the world. From Barcelona, from Egypt, from Seoul, South Korea. From Newark, New Jersey. We try to bring people great guests, great calls from our listeners, and of course, stupid jokes. And we do it with two hosts that have very different viewpoints. Now, here's the thing, Garland. A lot of people would think you and I would just argue. I mean, I'm a Republican Trump supporter. And, of course, I am a progressive Democrat Bernie Sanders supporter. The surprising thing is how much we actually agree on. And you won't be surprised because you're going to find out just how much you agree and just how much you enjoy this show. The mother of all talk shows. Join our faculty of legends, contributors, and callers. Everyone is welcome. Now, the second poll is up and running. Uh, I didn't know that, so I better quickly tell you what it is. Who should be the next James Bond? Well, I think the current James Bond should stay on myself, but who should be the next James Bond? Because he isn't going to be. A, Idris Elba, 30% say him so far. B, Tom Hardy. That's where my vote would go. 52%. C, Eddie Izzard, 18%. Why not? He could identify as James Bond. You can vote now on my Twitter poll. And uh, my wife, who is listening, says, tell George, a Dutch celebrity, tried changing his age, but was declined by the court. Emile Rattleband. Because, you see, if that became a thing, I definitely would re define my age, because I identify as a 45-year-old, absolutely. Now, as you know, last week we began our Hall of Fame, and the first inductee was the late and great Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson, a giant uh, of his times, as is the second inductee. From here on in, you're going to be picking the members of the Hall of Fame. You're going to be sending me on Twitter, on Facebook, by email, through the week, who you think should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, but I have taken it upon myself to make the first two nominations. And so the second inductee of the mother of all talk shows, Hall of Fame, is Scott's Steel tempered with Irish fire. He is the great James Connolly, the second member of the Moats Hall of Fame, is a Scotsman who became famous in Ireland and throughout the world, paying with his life in the insurrection, unsuccessful though it was at the time, but crucial in the struggle to overthrow British rule of the majority of the country of Ireland. Connolly was born an Irish immigrant in a slum in Edinburgh in 1868. 
the third son of John Connolly and Mary McGinn. His parents had moved to Scotland from County Monaghan in Ireland and settled in the Cowgate, a ghetto where thousands of Irish people lived. He spoke with a Scottish accent throughout his life. The Cowgate was known as Little Ireland. Connolly's father and grandfathers were labourers. James had an education only up to the age of 10 in the local Catholic primary school. He left and worked in labouring jobs. Owing to the economic difficulties he was having, like his eldest brother John, he joined the British Army, enlisting at 14, falsifying his age, giving his name as Reed, as his brother had done. He served in Ireland with the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Scots Regiment for nearly seven years during a turbulent period in rural areas known as the Land War, which was a struggle for fair rents and security of tenure. He developed a deep hatred for the British Army that lasted his entire life. When he heard that his regiment was being transferred to India, he deserted. Connolly had another reason for not wanting to go to India. A young woman by the name of Lily Reynolds. They married in April 1890 and settled in Edinburgh. There, Connolly began to get involved in socialist politics. But with a young family to support, he needed a way to provide for them. He briefly established a cobbler's shop. But this failed after a few months. He wasn't much of a cobbler and he prioritised politics over shoe mending. Connolly became involved with the newly formed Independent Labour Party under Keir Hardy and at the same time, and here's a little known fact, he took up the study of and advocated the use of the neutral international language Esperanto. Two months after the birth of his third daughter, word came to Connolly that the Dublin Socialist Club was looking for a full-time secretary, a job that offered a salary of a pound a week. Connolly and his family moved to Dublin, where he took up the position. At his instigation, the club quickly evolved into the Irish Socialist Republican Party, the ISRP. A combination of frustration with the progress of the ISRP and economic necessity caused Connolly to emigrate to the United States in September 1903 with no plans as to what he would do there. On his return to Ireland in 1910, he was the right-hand man to the great James Larkin of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union. In 1913, in response to the Dublin lockout, an industrial dispute between 20,000 workers and 300 employers. He, along with an ex-British officer, Jack White, founded the Irish Citizens' Army. The ICA, an armed and well-trained body of labour men whose aim was to defend workers and strikers. Though they only numbered 250 people at most, their goal soon became the establishment of an independent and socialist Ireland. He also founded the Irish Labour Party, which has become 
a powerless, pale and pathetic shadow of the party he founded. He founded it as the political wing of the Irish Trade Union Congress in 1912. Like Lenin, Connolly opposed the First World War explicitly from a socialist perspective. He declared, I know of no foreign enemy of this country except the British government. During the Easter Rising, beginning on 24th April 1916, when the armed volunteers seized the Dublin post office, Connolly was commandant of the Dublin Brigade. As the brigade had the most substantial role in the Rising, he was de facto commander-in-chief. He was badly wounded in the fighting, and following the surrender, he said to the other prisoners, don't worry, those of us that signed the proclamation of the Irish Republic will be shot, but the rest of you will be set free. He was right. He was sentenced to death by firing squad. He had been so badly injured from the fighting, a doctor had already said he had no more than a day or two to live but the execution order was still given. He was unable to stand before the firing squad. He was carried to the prison courtyard on a stretcher and they shot him dead in a chair. His body along with those of the other leaders was put in a mass grave without a coffin. The executions, the martyring of the rebel leaders deeply angered the majority of the Irish population, most of whom had shown until that point no support for the rebellion. It was James Connolly's execution that caused the most controversy, raising public awareness of the goals of the fighting men of 1916, which gathered and garnered and galvanized more support for the movement that they were fighting for. And therefore, the blood of James Connolly watered the ground that led to the foundation of the Irish Republic and one day the reunification and unity of the Irish people across all 32 counties. I'm very proud to be a countryman of James Connolly. I'm very proud to have the same politics as James Connolly. James Connolly was one of the greatest men who fought the employers and fought the empire. And though he did not immediately succeed, in the end he won. And his name will be remembered forevermore in the annals of labor history and of the history of anti-imperialism as the great song said Connolly was there and he is proudly here in the hall of fame of the mother of all talk shows let's take a call and remember next week I want your nomination as to who should be the third Patrick is in Louisiana Go ahead, Patrick. Hey, Mr. Galloway, it's great to hear your voice once again. Um, 
I wanted to call about a, a previous caller from uh, Georgia had called about Bloomberg, and yeah. I wanted to ask or, or post this uh, this situation. I think Bloomberg is a Clinton plant. I think that you know the Clintons are, are really politically backing his candidacy, and I think that if he doesn't ascertain the nomination for the Democratic Party, and Bernie does, I believe he will bolt and run as a third-party candidate, costing Bernie the election and like in re-electing Trump. What do you think? That could happen. Uh, I'd much prefer Bernie to stand as a third-party candidate if they cheat him. Uh, if uh, Bloomberg runs as an independent candidate, he may damage Trump as much as he would uh, damage uh, Bernie. He is, of course, at heart a Republican. He was a Republican. Uh, he was a Republican mayor of New York City. He backed George W. Bush in his presidential elections. He's given a fortune to the Republican Party. So it is quite possible that an independent run by Bloomberg might well damage Trump more than it would damage Sanders. What do you think? I think that's an interesting analysis. I never thought of it that way. I think he could do damage to Trump. But I see, I, that's true about him formerly being a Republican. But of course, at one time, Trump was a registered Democrat. Politically, he's been all over the map as well. So three mm. of the three is the only principal candidate. These now, are, uh, these are uh, turbulent and unpredictable times, Patrick. We've never been in this kind of place before in the United States of America, where a socialist is the front runner for the Democratic Party nomination to stand against a Republican president as unbelievable as Donald Trump. Yeah, that's exactly right. We've seen the, the, we've seen populism on both the left and the right. You know, you've had elements within the Democratic Party that have uh, kind of have manifested itself similar to what you've seen with, with uh, Bernie. But no, no candidate has ever come close to getting the nomination. You've always had these neoliberal candidates who would always win out in the day. You know, like uh, Carter and yeah. Tweedledee, Tweedledee, and Tweedledee and Tweedledum. A great call, Patrick. Not a great line, but a great call. Thanks for it. Dennis is in New York. <clears throat> Let's go to Dennis. Hey, George, how are you today? By the grace of God, I'm good. What would you like to talk about? Well, George, so uh, earlier a caller had mentioned uh, the possibility, or you had, had come in and said the possibility of maybe Bernie being eliminated in a JFK kind of way, and that... Yeah. I was talking about this a week ago with a friend of mine, and I didn't know whether in the age of social media it would be something that they could carry off a, a, a takeout of that uh, magnitude, only because even in the Kennedy case, it was maybe two or three years later that they all, you know, a copy of the JFK, the Zabruta film, uh, was circulating college campuses. It was very slow. Even the King trial in 99, the civil trial in Memphis that convicted a jury of 12, convicted the government involvement in the killing of Martin Luther King. Like, nobody knew about it. It's a crime of the century, and yet O.J. gets all the press, and this was ignored. So do you think in social media they can get away with it as easily? Well, it, it would be a terrifyingly dangerous thing for them to do. Uh, it would be uh, the worst thing uh, that they had done since the killing of their own president. Uh, in the uh, form of JFK. Uh, and as you say, it was easy, much easier to suppress 
the facts of the killing of Jack Kennedy than it would be uh, a killing now in 2020. And so they'd have to weigh very carefully the potential costs of uh, carrying out such an operation. But they don't have to do it directly, Dennis. The United States is filled with killers with guns. The United States is filled with, with, uh, with people with a grudge with, uh, who, can be, who can be motivated, mobilized, oriented uh, towards carrying out such a, a crime. But it would be a very, very big and risky thing for them to do. The question is, is it a bigger risk than electing a socialist, the president of the United States of America? That's quite a big thing too, isn't it, Dan? Yeah, it is. I was thinking that if he got elected, then they have a lot of ways within Congress and, and other factors to try and undermine his power. Certainly the media, uh, Bloomberg is showing, can marshal forces any which way they want. But I, I am curious about you know, how they would deal with that. Well, let's pray to God that it never happens, and it's only a dark uh, uh, suspicion that you and I and a few others uh, are entertaining. Dennis, thanks for the call. Jared is in Pennsylvania. Let's hear from him. Jared, welcome. Uh, hello, George. I want to give a bit of a perspective from a swing from one of the swingiest of swing states in America, yes. the Rust yes. Belt. Yes. Um, about Bernie Sanders. Um, first of all, I am scared for Bernie Sanders' life. I, I say that sincerely. Not only his health, but I fear that um, not only a crazy person could come out and shoot him, but somebody could um, threaten his family, which is something else that we're not talking about. Um, the, the, the CIA or uh, some shadowy intelligence agency could threaten his family if he doesn't go along with the program with Russia or China. And that, that is something we should also take into account as well. Um, as for Bernie's chances, um, from what I'm seeing, I think Bernie is doing pretty good that even if they try to, to rig it um, in, on the polls-wise, that they can, they can only cheat so far before before it starts becoming obvious of what they're doing. I mean, in New Hampshire, I'm still skeptical of whether Bernie really only won by 1%. I think it could have been a lot uh, bigger, but I haven't seen the exit poll, so I don't even know. Well, um, the, the exit Bloomberg, poll was four points greater than that. Yeah, that, that makes me a bit suspicious, but... Sure. Um, it, it, it is run by the New Hampshire government there, the primary, so it's a little bit more legitimate. A little bit better than the, the Iowa caucuses. <laughs> run by the, Demo the DNC. That's geez, that craziness. Um, but uh, Bloomberg, I want to talk about him. Um, to give a perspective, he is actually winning over... Uh, black voters more than you would expect, which is kind of uh, shocking, I find, a little bit, considering his uh, past comments and uh, stop-and-frisk policy. And I was talking to an um, older uh, uh, black uh, woman that I work with, I've been friends for years with, and uh, she says basically it's a race between uh, Bernie and Bloomberg, and while she says that she's very sympathetic with Bernie Sanders and voted with voted for him in the last primary, 
She says that uh, Bloomberg also has a lot of money and um, could also be uh, a nominee as well. So it's very fascinating, the dynamic it is, here. It is. Uh, Jared, just because of the hour, I need to cut you short. I've got to go to New Orleans to hear from Torres. Go ahead, Torres. Good yeah, um, evening, sir. Evening to you, um, sir. I'm calling, I'm calling for a question about myself because I'm a whistleblower and also a comment. I'll start with the comment first. First, um, the DOJ is, is trying to classify WikiLeaks as the same thing as ISIS, which is a bad thing for Julian Assange and, and, and everybody else that's um, attached to WikiLeaks because that's going to contaminate the jury pool if they ever um, extradite him over here. And also by me being a whistleblower and saying and um trying to get my case started about uh, Mikey DeBakey contaminated water from what I've seen as a whistleblower, and I have a, I have a um I'm a disabled vet, right? Physically, I'm disabled to a certain extent, but I have a mental test coming up with a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist um medical. Staff, they, 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 the clinic is attached to Mikey uh, DeBakey, right, to the VA system. They're a contractor, third party, right? And I'm afraid that if I go in there, they might try to claim that I'm mentally unstable, and, and then it would be hard for me to be as a witness towards from what I've seen because a prosecutor or, defend, or defense attorney or whatever can slice me apart and saying, oh, this man is, you know, He's schizophrenia, or he's this and that, and that'd be another way how the VA, you know, would basically destroy my life. Well, I'm, I'm and, very, uh, I'm very it. sorry to hear uh, all of that, my friend. I'm sorry that I'm not able to help you with it either. Uh, here's an email uh, from Kevin in North Belfast. Thanks, George, for hurting and offending many of your loyal followers again, as we have asked in the past through email not to refer to the loss of a loved one as committed or the S word, as it is horrible, especially as a family who have suffered. Ending their life in this way uh, is accepted. You're lucky this has not visited you, otherwise you would know how harrowing it is. And I'm sure you would run to correct anyone who made such a hurting reference. I don't expect to hear this being broadcast as usual with your I'm okay, Jack attitude. Well, you did hear it uh, broadcast. Uh, the statement that she had committed suicide was made by her lawyers, uh, not by me. James in Dundee said, can I make a suggestion for a poll? It might be nice to see what the viewers and listeners think. I enjoy the callers when you get a good argument. So the poll can be, what do you all think of the show? Should I A, keep it as it is, B, have more callers, C, have more guests? I think it would be interesting. <coughs> to see the result. Interesting indeed. Uh, I don't know if a poll is the way, but feel free to let me know uh, on Twitter, by email, uh, or by call uh, exactly what you would like more of and less of. Um, Laura says, I would like to nominate Sophie Scholl as a true hero to be commemorated on your program. Who would imagine being as courageous as Sophie and her brother Hans as they faced their deaths and so inspirationally eloquent in the face of incomprehensible cruelty and suffering. It will be 77 years since their horrific murders on the 22nd of February. 
I've attached a link to a beautiful song, This Beautiful Day by Reg Muros. I don't know if you can play music on moats, I can't, but it will make you cry. Uh, I myself commemorate the annual anniversary of the martyrdom of Sophie and her brother Hans, who were, I think, 20 or 21 when they were murdered by the Nazis. They were a part of an underground movement seeking to oppose fascist uh, dictatorship in Germany. And I'm moved uh, indeed, Laura, by your nomination. Uh, Patrick McCarthy says, you should consider inducting the great Irish-American statesman of courage and conviction who vigorously opposed the Vietnam War, Senator Eugene McCarthy. Uh, tweets on our poll about James Bond. How's that going, by the way? Who should be the next James Bond? Idris Elba, 33%. That's up three. Tom Hardy, 49%. That's down three. Eddie Izzard, stationary on 18%. Uh, a good number of votes in, but you can still vote. Uh, I'll give you another five minutes or so, maybe, uh, to vote on my Twitter feed. Who should be the next James Bond? Idris Elba, Tom Hardy, or Eddie Izzard? I wonder who the 18 people, 18% of the people who chose Eddie Izzard uh, are. Uh, tweets on it. Messenger says, enough with, enough with the white people. Shesh, lol, Alba would make a great Bond. And Ashling International says, Michael Fassbender should be the next James Bond. Nolan Crane says, I think it should be Lawrence Fox. And Love Life More says, Idris Elba for me, about time we have a black James Bond. He's a great actor and has a classy look about him. Bernie Beach Trump says, Idris Elba, any other answer reveals you to be a cop. <laughs> and Five Star says, why isn't Sajid Javid on the options list? Kevin Delaney says, Kathy Burke. And Katia's Compass says, Charlize Theron identifying as a man. Now, there is an intriguing possibility. Sandy says, Idris Elba and Tom Hardy are probably too good for Bond and don't need it. But if they got it, I might watch the Bond movies again. Well, obviously, for a man of my age, class and background, uh, there'll never be another uh, Sean Connery James Bond for me. Uh, but I must say, the current James Bond is pretty spectacularly good uh, at it. Now, I'm going to tell you who's the first entrant on the wall of shame in just a few minutes' time, but I might be able to squeeze in another call uh, before that and read another couple of messages. Thomas Ryan says, All suicides are sad. Why do we not give the same response to the poor souls who are not in the limelight, like Caroline? Most of the suicides in Greater Manchester don't even get into the Manchester Evening News. I knew, there, I knew there would be a legend coming along, and there is, clear the lines, it's Norma in Bristol. Norma, welcome. Hello, George. Uh, great programme. Thank you. I, I enjoyed the talk on Iraq. It was very, very good. Thank you so much. Um, now, this is a bit frivolous, but I disagreed with Frank from Germany about Big Brother. Yeah. Now, a lot of people who deride it never watched it. Mm. And there are a lot of people who are snobby about it. Well, he it. was one of them. He didn't watch it. Well, no, he didn't. No. I mean, I always say when people say, 
I actually enjoyed Big Brother, you see. And they go, oh, my God. It, and it's not just that. It was like relief, George. Yes, I like we can't watching... uh, all work and no play leaves Jack That's a dull right. boy, huh? Yeah, well, I like watching how people reacted, you know, to different situations. And uh, when it comes to Jade Goody, um, who was a participant on it, she brought cervical... She died, actually, from cervical cancer, but she brought that to the fore. And now there's much earlier... You know, the, what's the word? Detection. Detection, that's right. Earlier detection of cervical cancer. Um, it's just... I think... Well, I've just got very, very quickly. Mm. Um, George, listen, George, you've got a face, right? You've got two eyes, you've got a nose. Now, my original philosophy is... One eye is for imagination, one eye is for initiative, and your nose, which is a V, is for variety. And that's my original philosophy, which I'm trying to say is why I like Big Brother. Uh, it's a very good uh, explanation. Uh, I, I had never watched Big Brother before uh, I went into it myself. I went into it for the reasons I adumbrated uh, earlier. Uh, but I'm not stupid enough to deny uh, that our series in particular, by all accounts, was uh, fantastically entertaining. Uh, we had the late Pete Burns. Uh, we had my yeah, good friend did, Dennis yeah. Rodman. We had all kinds of uh, fascinating, interesting people and the clashes of personality and insights into personality and distortions of personality. Yeah, uh, no. uh, you know, t tobacco is... You know, it's not by accident that Mandela banned smoking amongst the ANC prisoners when they arrived on Robben Island because he said, if you're still smoking here, you'll be a prisoner twice. You'll be a prisoner of the regime and you'll be a prisoner of the tobacco. And uh, being locked up in the Big Brother house where tobacco was being rationed by Big Brother uh, was an enormously powerful and distorting uh, factor. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of people who smoked on Big Brother, not just celebrity, but on the ordinary yeah. one. I wonder if you'd be allowed to do that nowadays. Possibly well, not. Anyway, yeah, it's no more. Yeah. It is okay. no more. It is no longer. I it may be coming back, George. The year after next, there are talks of Channel 4 bringing it back. Okay. I don't think, whatever the money... I mean, I was later offered for the last series of, on Channel 4, before it moved to Channel 5, I was later offered literally a king's ransom on which I could have retired to go on the last series of Big Brother. It was in uh, 2012. I declined, and along came the Bradford by-election, which I won and returned to Parliament, which would never have happened if I'd gone into Big Brother. So the real, the real big brother, the almighty, was looking out for me. Norma, thank you very much indeed. You're going to like the next thing I have to say, I'm sure, because I only have, I think, time now for the first nomination of the Wall of Shame. We have a mother of all talk shows, Hall of Fame, and we have a mother of all talk shows, Wall of Shame. And from next week, that'll be up to you to make nominations too. But as it's my prerogative to make the first nomination, I'm going to nominate Margaret Hilda Thatcher. 
the conservative prime minister for a whole decade, a decade which destroyed much of what had been good about life in this country, which tore the social fabric into shreds, which decimated our industrial areas as a matter of deliberate policy, which flooded as a matter of deliberate policy our coal mines, which broke uh, the proud legions of the mine workers in this country and their wives and their families, their communities, which disfigured and destroyed not just much of our manufacturing capacity in Britain, but left us on a road to absolute dependence on finance capital, which almost destroyed us in the crash in 2008. Because she deliberately let the hunger strikers die in the north of Ireland by provocatively ending their political status and paying no mind to whether their hunger strike led to death and further radicalization, further political and military consequences that were dreadful for Ireland and for Britain. Because she shot those young Argentine conscripts in the back as they ran away from the Falklands Island when she sank the Belgrano. Because of her love of the Freedmanite Chicago boys, hard right finance capitalism, which beggared millions in our country and cared not for their fate. Because Margaret Thatcher was so wicked, her whole life began in wickedness. One of the first slogans I ever uttered was Margaret Thatcher milk snatcher when she took the free school milk on which poor children like me had depended in school when she snatched out of their hands this free school milk. But it was her attitude to the North, to the Midlands which had voted for her, to Scotland, her destruction of our coal industry, our steel industry, our shipbuilding industry, our car industry, our truck, our bus, our railway workshop industries. Her absolute vindictive destruction of the hundreds of thousands of people who depended on deep coal mining in our country and turning our back, walking on the other side of the road so far as their difficulties and problems were concerned. And it's no accident that Margaret Thatcher, Milk Thatcher, Milk Snatcher, it's no accident that she, addressing the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland on the mound, said there is no such thing as society. There is only individuals and families. No such thing as us and always. No such thing as honoring and cherishing other people's parents, caring for other people's children. No such thing as society. Only me and now. Me and now. As Neil Kinnock 
most famously said. She also told the Church of Scotland General Assembly that the important thing about the parable of the Good Samaritan was that the Good Samaritan had money, had made money, rather than the fact that he refused to pass by on the other side of the road when he found someone in distress and suffering. I hated Margaret Thatcher all of my life. I fought her, I campaigned against her. I fought in Parliament against the absurd state funeral that she was afforded. Big Ben was muffled. Parliament suspended for a woman who cared nothing for Parliament, for democracy. It was the poll tax that done her. And I was one of those leading the campaign of non-payment of the poll tax. So although I hated her, I at least got the satisfaction of being in the vanguard of those that brought her down. And when she was buried, I agreed with Elvis Costello, who this week unbelievably accepted an OBE. For what, Elvis? Why? I said, Margaret Thatcher, tramp the dirt down. You are on our wall of shame forever.